Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on social media at Galen Trombley. I hope you enjoy the show. Greetings. Please hold for a very important message. Light speed sequence initiated. How may I help you? Bonjour. Security breach. The truth shall set you free. <laughs> awesome. It's a miracle. Mission complete. Thank you. Have a nice day. I'm good to go. Let's do it. Let's have some fun. All right, everybody. Episode, again, I apologize. Episode 232 of the Galen Trombley Show. My guest today is Mike Carpenter. Uh, Mike has a pretty long resume here. I'm going to let him dive all into it. But um, I just found out before we got on the podcast that he his podcast um, that had a little bit of a hiatus, but was, and we'll, we'll dive into this, but it, it sure. looks pretty cool. So, um, so Mike, Mike's not a, not a rookie at this. I feel like he's going to settle in pretty good, brought his own drink. This it's not like his first rodeo here. So but <laughs> Mike, you, yeah. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so people that don't know you, and again, if you want to rattle off some titles that you just, it'd be better coming from you than me, but, um, who are you? How'd you get here? Give us a little bit of your backstory. Who am I? How'd I get here? Well, I'm a, I'm a product of Plattsburgh, New York. My father is Herb Carpenter, who most people that if they're local will know who he is. Um, so I was born and raised here and typical, you know, North country kid, played a lot of sports, did a lot of things like that when I was a kid and, and couldn't wait to get out of here. I was, you know, 18, 19, need to go live somewhere that's, you know, life is faster and bigger and more going on. So I left when I, right after school and, and wound up in a suburb in New York city and lived down there for almost 10 years and uh, got into the world of truck driving and warehousing. And I, I didn't have any formal education, so I needed something to do. And that paid me a fair amount of money. And uh, so I just lived and, and had a good time. And when I say had a good time, many people who know my history, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the recovery community now. So I spent my early years um, partying to excess, 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 you know, quite a bit over the top. Um, so that, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I did. And that was my life. And I, I always worked in the transportation business. So I was a truck driver. I was a warehouse manager. I was a dispatcher. I was a uh, safety coordinator, you know, you name it. I was in that field of kind of logistics. And, uh, when I came back here, when I was 29 or 30 years old, I went to work for a friend of mine on the Canadian border, um, working for an importer or a company that was doing Canadian cross goods traffic, which if you're familiar with this area, there's a lot of us that are in that business. And, and that's where I kind of learned the international trade business and the, the, Short version of the long story is I never envisioned working with my father or in the family group of companies, which is what they are. Um, but, you know, one thing led to another and the opportunity was there and I took it. And I think when I went to work with my father 25 years ago, I said, I'll stay for a year or two and then I'll move on because I thought we would probably kill each other if we worked together. And, and you know, here we are 25 years later and he's long since retired and I'm the president of the company. I'm married. Uh to a girl who I met here 20 years ago. She's a little bit younger than me. We have one puppy. We live in Peru. And, uh, you know, that's kind of my, my the, the, the short version of the story. Okay. We can dive into well, any of the specifics well, you want to dive into. No, but that's ab- who I am. Absolutely. So uh, you went to Peru then growing uh, up? No, I went to Plattsburgh High School. Okay. And I'm a, as I said, if you want the whole colored story, I'm, a, I'm an original class of 1981 student 
who didn't have enough credits to graduate. So I went back in 1982, again, didn't get enough credits to graduate, wound up at the Clinton Community College Entry Program in 83, and that gave me enough credits. So I'm effectively a graduate of the class of 1981, 82, and 83. You just love school so much, right? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, a lot of people can't uh, say that. <laughs> so, so when you... Uh, so, so I guess you're, and you kind of just touched on it though. Like you started off, you get out of school. Obviously, it sounds like school grades and stuff maybe wasn't either came difficult or maybe wasn't a big priority. Probably one of so the two. I, you know what's funny? If you look at my high school transcripts, and I've gone back and looked at them sometimes, I got A's in a lot of classes. And if I liked the class and I liked the teacher, I got an A. And I I didn't fail a lot of classes. I got a lot of incompletes. I was. I was a very rebellious kid. I had a real problem with authority. If I didn't think teachers were good, I didn't think I should have to go to class, so I didn't go. So it wasn't that I wasn't smart and capable. It was that I I really just was obstinate. If I didn't want to be part of, I just wasn't part of. So, so, and that, that sounds like it carried over into the early part of your career. Oh, yeah. You get into yeah, trucking yeah, and that. Yeah. So when you get into trucking um, – I guess, what was the first gig out of high school in the trucking community? Was it just driving trucks up and down so the highways? It's, and- it's, it's funny. That's an interesting question because it actually goes back a little before that. My father, when I was a kid, owned a, a very small string of pet stores. So he had a store here, a store in Syracuse, and two stores in Massachusetts. So as a senior in high school and in that summer between, I think, 81 and 82 or 82 and 83, I actually drove a van for him between here in Syracuse and Massachusetts and delivered pet supplies. So everything would come in here and I would do delivery. So when I, when I talk about my first job, I'll tell you in a minute what kind of my first real job was, but that was effectively the first one, the first time that I started doing it. And I loved being on the road. I just loved to drive. I can hop in my car and drive straight through to Florida or Texas and not, it, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me today. Um, so I loved doing it. It was maybe the freedom, maybe the fact that I didn't answer to anybody when I was there, whatever it was. When I moved to uh, downstate, the first job that I got um, was delivering furniture for a company out of Massachusetts that delivered high-end furniture and low-end furniture all over the New York City area. So I actually, for a while, had the Staples office supply account. Back in the day, so this goes back to the early to mid-80s, Staples sold an awful lot of office furniture. That was a big piece of their portfolio. I don't know if it still is, but it was then. So I would get the run down to Midtown Manhattan where I would deliver office furniture. And my my big claim to fame in the delivery world is I delivered a whole suite of office furniture to Geraldo Rivera's office one day. So my day to, to go there was, you know, I was like, wow, that's really cool. Like, I don't, I don't know this guy, but that's kind of a cool thing. Um, and we delivered high-end furniture too, you know, $15,000 dining tables and things like that. So, and that's where I really learned uh, the truck driving business. And that was back when reading maps, there wasn't GPS or any of that kind of stuff. So that was what a lot of my career in my early twenties was, was driving truck. I also spent some time. I have a, so we have a fair amount of time today, so I can go in depth. All right. So, so I have a kind of a, a varied history as much as I'm in the logistics business. I spent about a year putting up party tents for a living big party tents for weddings for a company out of Danbury, Connecticut. And our claim to fame there is we actually went to Miami for three weeks and put up a tent at the Vizcaya Museum that we were the only company in the country that was willing to do it because the other people had had their tents blow into the 
into the bay because it was so windy. So I got to go and party for three weeks in South Beach. Well, we put up a party tent and, yeah. and did that. So I have this, I have this kind of really varied uh, work life of, of what it was that I did back in those days. But much of it was around that logistics delivery delivery kind of business. So how long did that last doing those kind of jobs? Oh God, I did that. It's about 10 years? Well, probably. And, and you have to throw in, and we might as well just dive into it. You know, you have to remember that I was heavily involved in, in drinking and drug use back then. So yeah. the driving truck and being drunk, like there were a lot of nights I can tell you that I don't remember getting back to Danbury, Connecticut from New York City. And I'm not proud of that, but it's, it's truthful. And, mm -hmm. and so there was an awful lot of that mixed in with that. So I, I spent most of that time until I got sober and when I was 26, which is what, 1990, I guess, um, driving. And then I spent the next probably 10 years after that doing it. There's an irony to it. I never, I never got a class A license. I got a class B license. So I was driving a, like a straight truck, like a 22 or 24 foot straight truck. And I never got rid of that license until about 12 years ago. Like I kept it because it always allowed me a decent living if I ever wanted to get out and move somewhere else in the country or whatever. So as much as I pretty much knew 20 years ago that I probably wasn't going back to being a truck driver, I kept that license for a long time so that I would always have the ability to go back and, and do it. You know, I subsequently gave it up when I became um, the president of the company. So I drove, I probably actually stopped driving for the most part in my early 30s. When I, when I came back from Connecticut and actually got sober here in Plattsburgh, I... I was the Humpty Dumpty potato chip salesman for about okay. a year. So I drove around in the big Humpty Dumpty truck and stocked potato chips in the places which still fell in the in the realm of, uh, you know, delivery and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's always been in there. It's just been in there in a lot of different arenas. So um, and did, did you move back to Plattsburgh as part of like, you know, the the, uh, the sobering up and getting at it? Like yeah, so rehab as, and stuff? So as the story goes, I'm... You know, I'm sitting in an apartment in Danbury, Connecticut when I'm 26 years old. It's 1989, I think October of 89. And I'm, I'm a mess. I'm a mess, Galen. I'm, you know, drinking all day long and I can't, I'm unemployed. I'm unemployable. I'm, you know, I owe everybody money. I'm about to get evicted. It's, it's, it's an ugly time in my life. And so I stumbled into rehab in 1989. And after rehab, I went back to Connecticut and couldn't just couldn't do it. Like I would wind up drinking and then stay sober for a couple of weeks and drink and stay sober for a couple of weeks. And there was a whole family intervention and the family was involved and everybody was trying to help me. And ultimately it was decided mostly by me, but with an awful lot of input that coming back to Plattsburgh was probably the best thing. And I, I don't know if I had it to do over again, if I would choose to do it that way, but ultimately it worked out to be the best thing. So yes, I came back to Plattsburgh and, and this is where I finally said, okay, enough's enough. I need to stop and I need to, you know, kind of get my shit together and, and, you know, be, uh, be more in tune with what's going on. So that was kind of the beginning of that. But I subsequently left Plattsburgh twice in the years that I've been sober. Once I, I went to Rochester, New York and lived there for about a year and drove for an office supply company. So I delivered office supplies around the greater Rochester area. And then later on, God, this is probably pretty close to before I came to work with my father, I took a job at Conway Central Express, which is now XPO. And I was one of their uh, 
distribution center night managers in Springfield, Mass. So I lived in Springfield, Mass for about a year um, before I came back and went back to work on the border. So I've been around all, always in the Northeast, but I've, you know, moved and come back. And, you know, when I came back that time from Springfield, I was in my mid-30s and I was like, look, Plattsburgh's home. It's where I grew up. I like the lifestyle of the bigger areas and things, but I can get that. I can go north to Montreal. I can go south to Albany or New York, but th- this was home. So that last time I came back in probably 95 or 96. At this point, this. you were sober? I've been sober, yeah. I've been sober since 1990, so I've never had never gone back since that oh, day. So, nice. yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so coming back into the area, and I want to, I'll dive back into a yep, lot of that stuff sure. later on, but f- coming back into the area... Um, did you join? Did you join with your dad right off? Was that the? Oh God, when no! You came back in the thirties. No, 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 or not thirties. No, no. When you came back, when you were in your thirties. Oh God, no! I went back to work for a friend of mine on the border. I was back up in Champlain working at a, a company up there, and they were going under. They were about to go under, and I didn't have anything to do. I was in my mid thirties, and me and a friend of mine who kind of worked in that same business, we're just going to start our own very small warehouse business or transportation brokerage or something. I didn't know what to do. And so I'm thinking that. So the only person I knew who'd ever started and ran a business successfully was my father. So I came and talked to him about it. And he said he would help us. He would give us a little office. And, you know, if we need a little bit of money, he would help. And the guy that I was going to do it with had young children and just couldn't take that kind. He needed a job with a paycheck. And, and so he opted out. So it was just me. And I'm sitting on the deck of the house that I lived in at the time on a Sunday morning. And my father came over, my father and Mary, and he said, um, we'd like you to join our company. We have no lines of succession. We don't know what we're going to do. We think that we could grow in the area that you're familiar with. To which I literally spit my coffee out as he's saying that to me because I'm like, there's not a chance in the world you and I are going to work together. We'll kill each other in like a week. And so I said I needed to think about it, and I thought about it for a little while. And uh, and, and then I said, you know what? I'm going to take a shot. And I honestly thought when I went to work for him that I would work there for probably a year until I figured out what I wanted to do. And that was 1997, I think. So, yeah, it was my 26th year. And I've been there ever since. And I actually, in fact, you're in this nice new building right across the road. We used to own the buildings that are right across the road. Okay. That was where his printing company was. And I joined him on the first week that he moved from there to a building on Macomb Street in Plattsburgh. Okay. And that's where we started the distribution part of our business. So my father's company was always a printing and direct mail company. He does the Strictly Business magazine. Mm-hmm, yeah. and thing. That's what he always did. The warehousing piece, which is where all the explosive growth has been in the last 20 years or 25 years, was what I brought to it. And I think when people ask me, how do you work in a family business, I can often tell them that family business is incredibly rewarding and incredibly challenging. There, there, there's no doubt that the rewards that I get out of it are superior to the, the challenges, but it's not without its share of challenges. What made my father and my stepmom, Mary, and me successful, I think, is that they continued to run the printing and mailing end of the company. I developed the fulfillment end of the company. So it wasn't like I just came in and took over dad's company while he was getting ready to retire. I brought a different element. So I think if I had just come in to kind of learn the printing business, 
probably wouldn't have stayed. It probably wouldn't have worked. So that's where the synergy comes from, is the fact that I brought the, the distribution arm of the business to the company. How long has um, the company been around? 40, this is our 43rd year. And so, your dad started from scratch? Started from scratch. Um, so when you you come on and... What's that, year, what, 13, 14? Oh, no, it's further than that. He started in 80, and I came on in 98. So what's the 97? So, eight, so 17, 17, 17? Yeah, yeah, year 17. So when you came on and, and decided, what was the comp- how big was the company at that point, Ballpark? It was small. It was, uh, you know, employee-wise, there were probably 15 or 18 people when, okay. when I got there. We've been as high as 130. We usually hover around 70 or 75 right now. Okay. Um, and money-wise, it's probably three or four times the size that it was. But a lot of that's because the work is different. Like, they were actually a pretty big printing company for a town this size. Um, but the, the town is so small. When I came and brought the distribution, arm you have to remember we're servicing a market of what three million people in Montreal mm-hmm. so there's an awful lot of work I mean you have other friends that are I won't tell you who they are but you have other friends that are the same business that I am and the, the Montreal expansion and growth down here is what's fueled a lot of us um, so what was the conversation like to bring in the distribution part to it because I because I mean to me if I, if I look at that on the surface and you say distribution and you say digital print and advertising and mm-hmm. stuff it seems completely different to me yep. Um, is there overlap or is it pretty much as as divided as I, it looks to me? It's more synergistic than you think. Okay. It's, it's when my, when, let me back that up. If you're talking about just printing and especially nowadays when there's really very little, you know, offset printing or printers because everybody's got state of the art, you know, high end copiers and things like that. But when my father got into the direct mail business, which was in the probably early 90s before I joined. The direct mail business kind of led him into product distribution a little bit. Not like we do now, but it did allow him to do some of that. So he did magazine distribution and little trinkets and things like that that shipped through the U.S. Postal Service. So he was already kind of dabbling in it. He never would have gone to the point that we're at now. He, would, he wouldn't have tried it. He d- it didn't interest him enough. He didn't have any experience in it, but he was doing it in direct mail. So it was the next logical choice for this company's growth, if we were going to grow. If you go back, Galen, and think about it, my father's plan before I joined was not to grow the company to this. My father's plan was to keep it where it afforded him and Mary a really nice living. And they had the buildings across the road, as I said, that were apartments. And he was just going to sell the printing end of the business and they would manage those 25 apartments and that was their retirement so that was they often say to me in a joking way that I threw a wrench into you know what their retirement plans were by coming with this idea about what we could do with the company so and uh I mean was it well received at the start or or do you think that there was some like uh maybe some politicking on your end to try to pass it through as like this might be a good idea no, it was they they wanted to do it maybe even more than I did. Um, okay. I think they looked at it and said, this is something we want to try. Um, there's no other, you know, I have siblings, but there's no other siblings that work in the company. It's just me. Um, it was never designed to be a family business that was going to afford everybody in the family a living or everybody was going to come. It wasn't set up like that. I think at the time we all just felt like this might be worth it for us to take a risk. I think my father saw a way to help me develop into, you know, a businessman and, and do some things. He saw a way for him and Mary to be able to retire without necessarily closing their business or selling it to somebody else. So I think 
it's it's almost like most things that happen in life happen at, I think at our will with a whole lot of luck and, and timing in there. And I, I think it was just right. I think if we tried to do it two years earlier, four years later, it probably doesn't work as well. At the time, it seemed like it was right for all of us. Um, so how was the initial, like what was your initial entry level into the job when you first came on? I made $8.25 an hour. I was, uh, I, th- I don't even think he called me a vice president yet. I think I just came in and I got an hourly rate and I, I was just, it was like build the fulfillment department. And if you can do that, we'll talk about, you know, a real salary. And what happened is we had moved to the building on Macomb street and it was 20,000 square feet, which seems like a lot of space. I was there for about two months and I went to him and said, I'm out of space. We need to find another place. That's how we wound up on the air base. And it was after that conversation while we were in the process of buying the property on the air base that him and I and and Mary sat down and said, okay, let's work out a package that works for all of us. And in, in, you know, full disclosure and fairness, I'm an owner of the company. I'm a part owner in business with my father and Mary. And that was all gifted to me. They, they believed that it was, I'd earned it, but it was, you know, I guess when I say that story, what happened is I had a great idea. I was young and I had a good work ethic. And my father and Mary had resource, capital, and business understanding. And those two things together made it very uh, easy for this to work. Like, I, I got to start a business without taking any risk. Like, my father really, I mean, I, I, mean, I risked the time and that. Mm-hmm. But actual putting my own you know, name on the line, I didn't have to do. My father was willing to absorb that risk. What he got out of it was this, we got to work with his son and he got this company that grew into something bigger than I think he ever envisioned it could be. So it was one of those kind of perfect matches. So um, the, I guess, cause it sounds like fairly quick success or at least quick getting this up off the ground mm-hmm. running. Like th- those initial first few months or whatever that you were part of it, what do you think was the catalyst for the growth? It was all the connections I had in Montreal. You okay. know, the, the truth is that... And that's via the, the old trucking route. That's exactly right. And okay. working with a company in, in, in Champlain. You know, if you talk to any of the families that have been in this for longer than me, the Casey's, the Spiegel's, the, you know, the, the people that started this, we've, we all have good relationships in the Montreal community. I, I kind of joke around. I've gotten to be a little bit well-known in this community now. Early on in my business career with my father, I was much better known in the Montreal business community than I was in the Plattsburgh business community. I stayed pretty obscure here, but everybody up there knew me. So our growth, it didn't take like, I didn't have to go knock on doors in Montreal. I just had to let people know that I was up and operational and my phone rang off the hook. Like all of wow. our growth has been, and and it wasn't like dumb luck. Some of that is a lot of these people had worked with me for years. Mm-hmm. Now they didn't have somewhere to go, and so they heard that I was back in the business, and so they they came to me, and that's been a lot of the ways that the growth happens in this. Yeah, just relationships, yep. sphere of influence, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so when you started growing, like what was how has it been growing from the late '90s till now? Like just the actual growth from the company, and like where do you, can you pinpoint um, any time frames where you like? Yeah, that was a very important year or that was a big cattle or maybe that was a big like exponential growth year for us or for whatever the case might be a reason. Yeah, you know, there's I, I think certainly that first year probably I, I don't know that I could give you the exact dates, but in the building that we're in on the base, the 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 main building, which okay. houses our main office, 
That building, when we first built it, was 41,000 square feet. The second year we were open, we added 38,000 square feet. And the next year, we added 30,000 more with a mezzanine, another 15,000 square foot mezzanine. So in those first three or four years, the growth was exponential. And a lot of it was we positioned ourselves to be in the garment distribution business, not because it's a great business, but because there's a need for it and we had gotten good at it. So we were able to cater to the Montreal garment industry, which is bigger than a lot of people think. So most of our growth came in the garment explosion. Um, So product, you know, we're kind of, if you think about our business, and I, I hate to use this phrase, but we're like the bastard child of manufacturing in the U.S. You know, warehouses are open to service goods that are made overseas. Ironically, if we made t-shirts or dress shirts in the United States, you wouldn't be able to go to Walmart and buy them for $8 a piece. You'd be buying them for $80 a piece. So they're, you're almost, they're almost like a necessary evil mm-hmm. for product that's manufactured overseas and and there's a lot of us that have cropped up and you know you can look at amazon as the big guy so um so the growth in those first three or four years was exponential it leveled off a little bit through the probably mid 2000s and then we had a couple of spikes in the early 2000 and teens and we've kind of leveled off and what's happened is we've back in those early days galen we just Anybody who called us, we took. Like, oh, yeah, okay, we're open for business. Come see us. Now we've looked at our company and said, rather than just growing for growth's sake, let's grow, but let's grow with a strategy that says, let's get more profitable accounts in here. Let's not just add accounts to add workers. Let's do things like that. So we become more strategic than we were a few years ago. And it's actually made the company a little smaller but a little more profitable than it was in the past. So I think we had to go through all those things. We wanted to grow. We wanted the big real estate portfolio. We wanted all those things, and that's what we did. Now we're looking at it saying, what can we do to uh, grow the company strategically? And if I might take a minute just to tell you that, you know, our company and the way that we run our company is we're all, we're not social services, but... Our whole goal is to be an employer that can help people who have troubled pasts like I did. So we go out of our way to make sure that the first thing we're doing is not necessarily focusing on profit. We're focusing on how do we help people be able to get to work and and pay their bills and have a home and take care of their family and get sober and get their mental health under control and stuff. So our company's philosophy is way more about that than it is about profit first. We are a for-profit company. We all want to make money, so it's important. But we always want to make sure that we remember what our mission is. And our mission is to be that kind of vessel for people who have the same kind of troubles that I had when I was younger. So that's an important piece of what we do in the company. Um, do you think you, you mentioned like the late 90s kind of hitting like yeah. the garment time or the garment um, period of, of Montreal? Do you think if you were to start maybe 10 years later, 10 years earlier, whatever that you know sliding scale would be, but if you didn't start roughly in that time period, do you think that the company would, one, would the company be around, or two, would it look similar, or do you think it would have gone in a different direction? I think it would look dramatically different. I think it would have gone in a, in a different end. I think the idea of distribution like we know it today is different than it was 20 years ago. The advent of Amazon 
the internet coming on, all of that stuff has made the world so much smaller. In the old days, all of those Montreal businesses wanted to be in Plattsburgh or Champlain because they were close to their goods. They didn't have to buy a building in Champlain. They could do work with one of the companies, but they had access to their goods in a 45-minute drive. With the advent of the internet and all of that stuff, that's changed. People are willing to ship their goods out of anywhere. It's just easier for them to do it. So we're locked in with companies that we've had for a long time, but the newer companies, it's it's less... The, the phone doesn't ring off the hook like it used to, I guess, is the best way to put it. Not that we don't, not that we struggle with getting work, but it's not like it used to be. The other thing is the transportation rules have changed. You know, UPS and FedEx would love nothing more than to be able to ship direct from China to end user. You know, rather than, you know, cut out all the middlemen, we'll pick the goods up at the manufacturer in China and ship it to Galen Trombley's house. Like mm-hmm. that's, now that's a few years off, I think, in, in real practicality. But those are the kinds of things that change the middlemen like what we are. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm assuming that's something you guys think about going mm-hmm. into the future of, um, like, do you think that your company is a company that potentially could become obsolete in a few years? Or I'm guessing... Um, you know, obviously, your dad's background, your background that, you know, you, you have that like entrepreneurial blood in you that you're going to yeah. figure a way, you know, kind of um, manage it or pivot and do whatever you need to do. But do you foresee this industry eventually succumbing to that direct to consumer or do you think that it's always going to have some type of a role? I think as long as there are small businesses, it's always going to have a role. Here's the problem that you have with the Amazons of the world who can do the same thing that we're doing at a fraction of the cost because they're fully automated. Many of the bigger guys wind up with them. If you look at the niche that we have, and I think some of our friendly competitors on the border have, we're servicing small to medium-sized companies that are still a little primitive. They might be selling in boutiques. They might not be RFID capable yet. They might not be all EDI capable. So I do think that at some point this business has diminishing returns. I'm 60 years old in August. I don't think it's going to happen in my business lifetime, which isn't you know that much longer. But certainly 20 years from now, I don't know that I would be a guy saying I want to go into the warehouse business. That that might be, you know, the, the world might have changed too much for that. I was going to say, is there... Is there opportunity for distribution where it's not as much? Because I mean, the warehouse, you're, you're holding products. So That's you start exactly going right. into, like I graduated, don't, don't uh, quiz me on it because I'll fail all, <laughs> all your questions, but I actually graduated from college with uh, global supply chain management. Okay. Um, one, I was one of the first classes with it. I never went into the, the um, I never went into that field, but it always fascinated me, you know, kind of learning about logistics and, you know, efficiencies. And, um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot based on just trends and how things work on like a macro level that you can apply to pretty much anything. Uh, but if you, you know, if you start looking at, you know, you get a lot of space. It, depending on, I don't know how it works with the product being kept there. Like how long does it stay there? You know, and then kind of like capacity and stuff. But um, is there a potential where, hey, maybe the real estate side or the warehouse space we don't need. You know, three hundred. I think it was almost four hundred thousand uh, square feet. Yep. We may only need a hundred square feet, but we can do a lot more. You know, maybe, um, you know, maybe not less product, but more kind of service based type thing. Is yep. that is that like a possibility, or is that kind of not the way it's rolling? No, it is. the The irony of it is, it 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 changes pretty dramatically. I would agree with you that. I think that everybody goes to just-in-time inventory now if they can. Mm-hmm. 
And the, the problem for that is if you outlay a whole lot of money to buy product that you haven't sold, you're out. Your cash flow is terrible. You're out a few million dollars that you've paid for the product and you have it sitting in a warehouse that you're paying somebody storage for mm -hmm. before you can do it. So most people are trying to pre-sell their product or know what they're buying is pre-sold. The other thing that happens is with the, with the fluctuations in administrations, um, when the Trump administration was in there and they were kind of messing with NAFTA and what was going to happen, we saw a, a bunch of our customers overbuy product, fearing that the tariff rates were going to change dramatically, and so they wanted to get as much into the U.S. before that could happen. In a couple cases, that worked out well. In some cases, those companies didn't make it because they overextended themselves with product that they couldn't sell. So it's always this kind of delicate balancing act for what they're doing. The companies that run, if you talk about the clothing business, the companies that run the best for us, and, and let's talk about clothing and seasonality because for the most part it is. We're not talking about commodity items. We're talking about like dress clothes and things like that. The companies that do the best are the companies that buy their goods in July, August, September, and by the end of November, they're almost 100% empty or they have you know one or 2% of their goods left over. The people who struggle are the people who buy 100,000 units in you know delivered in August, and at the end of November, they're still sitting on 60,000 units that they were convinced were going to sell because somebody told the designer that this is going to be a hot product that's going to go to market. So mm -hmm. the people who aren't holding inventory are the guys who are making it. The people who are holding inventory are the people who typically struggle. So there is a change to where you're going to see much less in the way of space. The problem that you have is, is that we have some accounts. You know, I have an account that does restaurant equipment. They don't do a bunch of service with me because they don't sell a lot of restaurant equipment, but they rent 25,000 square feet from me because that's what they need to be able to store that. In the world of fulfillment, which is what we call our business, we like jewelry accounts, hand lotion accounts, underwear accounts because the product is small mm -hmm. doesn't take up a lot of space and you can do a lot of service without having to take up a ton of space so that's the goal for all of us is to get those kind of accounts so uh, is that go kind of into the simplistic part of it kind of like picking out that like the you know the perfect client or the perfect uh, account exactly so yeah. in the old so now if somebody calls us and says hey i sell um i sell car doors and i need a place to store my car doors we look at them and go so they need 20,000 square feet, but they only ship 200 doors a month. My service revenue doesn't equate to the space that I'm giving them. That's not a good account for us. Then you have a jewelry guy that comes to you and says, I sell $150 jewelry. I only need 200 square feet, and I do 50 orders a day. Those accounts are gold. They're in a little room the size of this. Mm -hmm. The value is high, so they're willing to pay you for the service because they're selling it for a higher thing, and it's easy to pick. It's right here. You pick, you pack it, and you ship it. So those are the accounts that, that we kind of want. And most, uh, are pretty much all the clients from, over, or say overseas, but international? I'm going to call Canada international. Yeah, we have a few U.S. clients, but it, most of it's Montreal, Toronto. Mm -hmm. We have a few from Vancouver, and we have a couple from overseas. So we're completely an international company, but the lion's share of that is is Montreal. That's, that's the market that we attack and, and have done. Most of those accounts that are from other areas came to us through a connection they had with a Montreal-based company. So they were looking for a new warehouse provider. They had a friend that in the Montreal garment area, and they talked to them, and they said, try these guys. There's a whole lot of, you know, you don't realize in the garment business, it might seem big, but it's actually a pretty small collection of people 
in Montreal that do it. So they know us and they know the other people that we compete with who do that same work. So when you talk about uh, like fulfillment, so this is like you're, you're the, like you said, the middleman, you get the order, then you're the one that's shipping it off to yep. where it's got to go. So when you look at um, from like a fulfillment standpoint, um, like what what is, if I said, Mike, pick out your perfect scenario, like the best way to ship a product or the best way, because there's different ways that it's done. Like you sure. said, just in time, like I don't drop shippings, a couple yep. things. So. If you could like magic wand all my all my clients or accounts are shipping this way, is there such a perfect account or does it fluctuate based on industry? Yeah, I think it fluctuates based on industry. I, I think that if you're dealing with majors like a Walmart or Nordstrom or Bloomingdale's or those, they're going to route the freight anyway. So it's all going to go out boxed and on skids in a truck. I think the funny thing is... Um, you know, FedEx and UPS obviously are good carriers. The Postal Service struggles, but they're less expensive. So, you know, a lot of it depends on that. One of the things that we found, and I don't know if this is exactly your question, but it is an interesting thought. In the world of online, typically if something's not selling online for over about $30, they're not going to be able to do business with us because they're not going to be able to pay me enough money to offset what they're selling. And if you think about it, if I sell those headphones for two, if somebody sells those headphones for $200, they can pay me a fair rate to get that ready. But if somebody's selling an item that's only $20, it still takes me the same amount of work to do that regardless of the value, but they can't necessarily afford that. So there's a, there's a bit of a, a cost analysis that goes into it. It's one of the reasons why I use jewelry. Jewelry is a great item because the margins are high, the cost is high, so the companies are typically willing to pay for the service, you know, the warehouse service. Uh, I've been diving more into like efficiencies and effect because it kind of the. I, th- I feel like most companies get into the same boat, especially different different things that like the economy shifting, like our you know our like the real estate market shifted and it's been kind of in a. Um, a weird up and down kind of fluctuation the last few years, um, kind of like extremes. And so then it takes, you know, I look at where are we inefficient? Where can we be more effective? Where can we like, you know, make some smarter decisions where a lot of it's like hitting the pause button, stepping back, kind of trying to do a more holistic view of everything. Um, but one of the things that I was like, you just kind of mentioned with like the product is, you know, I'm kind of been looking in our markets different. We don't have, um, you know, the, the pricing of real estate, it's a service industry, but we don't have like the commodity, it's commodity, but we don't have, we're not selling anything physically that we own. Right. But pricing has been like a big thing that I've been looking a lot at and like how pricing works. And, and, and one of the things is, is that it's like, if you go higher in value on price, there's a few psychological benefits, even though you're like, ah, nobody will buy it. It actually plays different than what you might think on the surface. When you start going like, I'll tell you right now, like these head, this headphone I have right now is over a hundred. These are about twenty-five to thirty dollars. Yep. Um, now, quality-wise, I got to upgrade to these, but quality-wise, like someone, you might sell a bunch of these, but there's also a level of, you know, you get something like this that's gonna, you know, you kind of buy for the qual- the uh, the uh, the actual quality itself and sure. how it performs and everything else. So I've been really like learning about. Um, Diving more into pricing, so that's why when you start talking about this, it's, it's interesting to hear like your perspective of like if you actually sell cheaper, like they might actually be better off depending on obviously the clients. Could they double this, triple the rate of it, provided that you know? And who's to say someone won't buy it for you know a hundred percent markup of whatever this is? Right. Um, do you ever deal with that direct? Like when you guys fluctuate and make prices and stuff, is it very 
like case by case or is it kind of like, is there a standard usually in the market or is it? Yeah, there's a, there's a standard that we have and there's a standard in the market. If you, if you were to go on Amazon, it's probably a couple bucks that they're charging a fulfillment company for an order. They may also be, you know, making you ship off their uh, UPS or FedEx account so they can take some of the money that's made in the in the discount pricing that they have based on volume. But overall, you know, somewhere in that four to five dollar range for an order that goes out online is what a lot of fulfillment companies are charging. So if you're thinking about charging somebody four to five dollars for an order to ship that and it's only a twenty dollar item, mm-hmm. you're talking about now they've only got left and they still haven't paid the freight on it. And the freight's going to be another five or six or $7. So all of a sudden it's just not worth it. So you're a hundred percent right for us in the old days. Anybody that came to us with e-commerce business, we would try to price and do now. The first question we ask them when they come to us is what are you selling? What's your price point? What are your margins? Most of them will share with us what they're selling and what their price points are. They don't necessarily share their margins. Some will. And when we ask that, we ask that, we say, we're not trying to figure out how we can make more money. We're trying to tell you that if your margins are so low, you're not going to have enough money to pay a service like mine to be able to to do that. So you're going to need to think of a different business plan. So we do look at that on a case-by-case basis. But if you looked at our pricing, Galen, we have... We have a standard set of a la carte pricing for all of our services. So let's say there's a hundred items on there for the different things you can do in a warehouse. Um, and all of those have kind of a standard price, but everything is a negotiation after that. We may, for an account that takes up more space, we may charge them a higher storage rate, but less on their handling because their handling is easier. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of play that goes into that, trying to get to the right place that works for us and works for you because... In our business, and I assume it's the same in real estate, like what you want as a real estate agent, I think, is to have people who buy a house from you and 10 years from now when they're ready to sell and buy, you want them to come back to you and sell with you and buy with you, yeah, right? Correct. We're the same way. If, if it's not good for you and good for us, it's not ultimately good for anybody. So I can charge a ton of money, but if they don't actually make any money off what they're selling, they're not going to be with me very long. They can beat me down on price to where it's not profitable, but if it's not profitable for me, how long am I going to do it? It's, mm-hmm. yeah. So it has to be good for both of us is, is one of the things you try to look at. Um, no, you're, you're correct on that. That's, just, that's the same. And, I, and sometimes I look at that too where I, I a lot of times I'll do case by case and I'll see if, like, is this going to be something that could be a long term? And there's other factors I, I factor yeah. in having done this a long time that I, I um, you know, do make some decisions that maybe aren't necessarily dollars in right now but i'm playing like a longer term game um when you talk about let's say you said the analogy before the car doors versus jewelry um and you're would both of those be roughly about the same amount you would charge per you know per fulfillment either whether the units are no it's it's certainly more for the stuff that's harder to handle than, than the jewelry but you have that base number that you you can probably never go below four or five dollars for an order of one piece regardless of what it is i think a car door would obviously cost a lot more because the handling piece is more but at that base level you're using that four or five dollars kind of as a starting point and are most of the stuff you ship um like bulk units or are there's just a lot of one-off things here and there or does that depend on depends the on the business and okay. you have some accounts one of my biggest clothing accounts does two distinct businesses they have an online place online is almost always one or two pieces at a time they also deal with all the majors not all of them but nordstrom's bloomingdale's dillard's you know the, the mm-hmm. big clothing guys 
that's always volume going out, a couple thousand units at a time, maybe 10,000 units. Ironically, I charge more for this individual order and unit than I do for this bulk order and units. Mm -hmm. This is probably five or six times more profitable for me than this is because the economies of scale say when you're picking 15 units at a time of the same item, you're going to do that much faster than you are picking one, mm-hmm. making a box, putting it in the box, getting it ready to ship. So there, so there's always that kind of play in it. So it's, it's like the idea of batching stuff, like yeah, hundred percent. And, um, yeah. and that's that's another part of like the the efficiencies I've been looking at is just like doing so much more. And this isn't shipping. This could just be checking email or doing um, like before you got here, I was doing four different um, you know files for clients, but I did it all at one shot. I'm in right. the groove. I'm going through it. It took yep. me half hour to do all four where yeah. that would take it much longer but to start and stop so yep. um so with the so right now north uh northeast northeast group is you have the distribution you still have the you know or the fulfillment yep. and you still have the print and then those are your two main businesses and then mhab is part of that so or is that like a different it's under the umbrella though right? yeah so the so if you think about it there's there's probably a half a dozen different llcs that own parts of the Northeast Group. So the the Northeast Group is the parent company. Mm -hmm. Some of the property is owned in different LLCs. And then when we started MHAB, MHAB is owned exclusively by the Northeast Group or the players that are in the Northeast Group, but it's a separate entity that operates as a standalone business. Some of the expense things and stuff like that are run through the Northeast Group because we're still the parent company, but it is a separate standalone, standalone business. And the reason we did that so if I back up and tell you a little bit about MHAB, yeah. MHAB is kind of a, a unique business in that we, so let me take five minutes and tell you the story of how we got there, yeah. if that's okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So Betsy and I were sitting in her office one day, Betsy's my business partner, the CFO of our company and, and a minority owner, and her and I have worked together for, got 17 years now, I think we're almost like brother and sister. So it's a very good relationship. And her and I were sitting in her office one afternoon in I think 2018. And we're talking about helping people. And this is as the opiate crisis is exploding, people are dying all over the place, mental health is, you know, mental health issues are rising. And we're like, we don't think we're doing enough in the community, we have to do more. And it was at that time that we understood that Clinton Community College was probably not going to be able to hold on to the dorms that they had because they didn't have enough enrollment and, and people there. So we decided to talk to the president of Clinton at the time and see if they were interested in selling those. And our goal behind that was to make a uh, life skills campus for people struggling with addiction, mental health, poverty, domestic violence, any of the social ills that affect the, the world. And we didn't want to do it with government help. We didn't want to do it as a nonprofit where we had to answer to anybody. We wanted to do it the way that we thought was right. So we invested our own money and bought those dorms. And with the help of many nonprofits in the area, almost all of them, we said, we're going we're gonna to put our money up. We're going to invest in this property. We're going to give people a place to live. And we want you guys that are in the nonprofit agency to come and help these people get their life together, you know, get their version of the American dream. That's how the plan kind of started. And in a relatively quick period of time, less than a year, we went from the kernel of that idea to putting our first resident in there. And so MHAB is wholly owned. It's a, it's a separate company, but it is umbrellaed under the Northeast group of companies. And the actual acronym for MHAB stands for the people who own it. Myself, Herb, my father, my stepbrother, AJ, 
who's been an owner of all of the parts of the Northeast group since I was, and Betsy. And that's where the, where the acronym comes from. And it was designed as nothing more than a for-profit, but I use the word for-profit loosely, um, a for-profit business that's a life skills campus to help people get their life together. And what that actually means is it's housing first, there's a recovery center on site, there's job training, there's financial counseling, there's therapy, there's recovery coaches, there's transportation, there's gardening opportunities, there's work opportunities either with me or other employers in the area. And all that we ask of the people is they need to be willing to take advantage of the resources that we're giving them. And that was kind of the plan behind behind that. Is it fully subsidized or majority subsidized? Not, not subsidized by... You mean subsidized by us? Or well, just in general, like the, the uh, people that are residents there, is that something they still work and pay for? Much of them are self-pay. So yeah. much of many of them have jobs. And I will tell you that most of the employers in the area were great. When we spoke to them, they all embraced the idea. Obviously, as the workforce shrinks, you need to look at being creative. So mm-hmm. these people who they might not have taken a chance on before, most of them are willing um, a lot of it is paid by DSS, still Department of Social Services. So I guess you could call that subsidized, whether they're living with me or somebody else. Um, so yes, there's some of that, but direct subsidy or grants or things like that, we don't do. They, it would be on an individual basis. So if Galen Trombley became homeless, needed a place to live, and you went to the Department of Social Services, they would do some preliminary discussions with you about where you were in your life. Mm-hmm. And then based on that, they would decide where you go. So if you think about us, and I won't, I won't bash any of the other hotels in this area, but there are places that are just homeless shelters. The, the people call DSS, and they put them in these places. We're not. We're a transitional housing model. And what that means is the people who come to us don't have to be flourishing but they have to be working toward getting their life together. They can't just say, I'm homeless and I want a place to go and sleep and shoot heroin and be left alone. If they say, I'm homeless, I'm involved at Champlain Valley or BHSN or Clinton County Mental Health, I'm doing this, I'm trying to get a job and I'm doing this, then we would entertain taking them at MHAB. So we're trying to do that next step up. They have to be looking at doing something, not just for a place to you know, fall and sleep. How many, uh, how many rooms do you have, or beds? So 100, there's 150 rooms wow. between the two dorms that are available right now. And that's the ones if you drive into the parking lot on the left, yep. right? Okay. Yeah, there's three dorms there. The third dorm needs a complete remodel. So we operate one dorm, which is wholly operated by our company, MHAB. The second dorm is operated by a company called Community Connections out of Franklin County that does a homeless first model. So they might... So if you think about it in terms of where people are in their recovery, the dorm that's operated by Community Connections, they're a little, maybe not as far along as they are in mine. Maybe they haven't completed treatment yet. Maybe they're still struggling, but they're seeing a counselor. When they come to ours, they've typically committed or completed some type of a treatment program, maybe a halfway house. Um, they're a little further along. Maybe they're already working. They have their own money. They have a, they have a vehicle, transportation, all those types of things. But it's kind of anecdotal. Usually, we have somewhere between 80 and 110 residents between the two dorms. 85 seems to be the sweet spot where we can manage it. You get up more than 100, it can get a little hairy. And you have to think about this, Galen. And, and 
I don't know if you've ever struggled with mental health or addiction or any of those things, but when you take a hundred people that are in like some early form of trying to get their life together after destroying it for years and throw them into a housing thing together, it can get volatile at times. So, uh, you know, you try to be careful and make sure you're separating the people properly and doing that. But there's an awful lot of behind the scenes work that goes into trying to keep everybody safe over there. So, um, and, and I, I've, I haven't been on the dorm side. I've been in the, I'm where the kitchen or yep, the, sure. MHEP Fresh is, like yep. that area. Um, so that wing, so on the right side of the parking lot, that main wing where they have rotary and, and yep. a couple other things, um, what is that? Because there's a gym in the back, there's, you know, there's a yep. kitchen, there's a restaurant or, you know, like a, a deli yep. kind of thing. So what's the purpose of that and who utilizes that space? So when we set that up, in that building that you're talking about, there are two distinct sides. One side is the conference center where you guys do rotary and we hold other groups and things like that. And that's a, a pay for use area that we use. The goal behind that was we would bring some money in. Bigger than bringing the money in, we would bring people who might not have an understanding of what an addict is or somebody with a mental health issue and hopefully put them on our campus where they would begin to realize that everybody who has an addiction problem is not a criminal. Mm -hmm. And where all the people who have addiction problems would start looking at everybody that's in Rotary or those types of groups and go, wow, everybody who's in Rotary isn't an elitist that doesn't care about me. Like you're trying to break down the stigma both ways. The other side of that building has what's called a recovery center, which is fully funded by Oasis, Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services, I think, although that acronym may not be right anymore. And that's in conjunction with Champlain Valley Family Center. So Champlain Valley Family Center actually rents that for, I think it's 12 or 13 hours a day, six days a week. That is fully staffed by recovery coaches, people who are trained in understanding recovery and it's a hundred percent drop-in center for anybody in the community at any time so you can come in there have a cup of coffee watch tv talk to one of these guys get all the information about addiction treatment mental health problems things that are going on in in that kind of world um and it's it's been great for us it's probably one of the best things that's happened there and that happened about two years after we were open and we hope that it lasts forever the gym that you mentioned so I kind of bash the government a little bit. I guess you might call me a libertarian or close, but we we were not going to ask for anything. We were going to do this all on our own. <clears throat> and my dear friend, Rochelle Gregory from Clinton County Mental Health said, you need to talk to these people at Oasis. They love this idea. They want to help you. And so I got on a call with them and I gave my usual caustic speech about not wanting to deal with government. And they asked if they could help, and they wound up giving us almost a half a million dollars over two years to help with our, so we have a state-of-the-art gym, it's all state-of-the-art, brand new equipment. Mm-hmm. It's included in the rent for every resident. Nobody else can use it. They have 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week access to it, high-def TVs in there. There's a bike program, so we have, I think, probably 75 brand-new bicycles there that anybody can sign out at any time. The garden and the greenhouse, which provide fresh vegetables to us and to our residents, all paid for by that money. And the kitchen, so what happened is the original idea for this was house our residents, feed them two meals a day. When we realized that most of our residents use SNAP benefits or what many people think of as food stamps, If you're on SNAP benefits, you can't eat in a restaurant setting. So you can't use your SNAP benefits to walk into one of the restaurants and order a meal and eat there. Has to be packaged food. So in order to get around how we were gonna feed our residents, we said, well, what if we open up a store 
make all of the goods fresh, wrap them, put them out for sale, can they use SNAP benefits? And they said, yes, absolutely. So everything in that store is made on the morning that it's put out for sale. Occasionally they might use soup for two days or whatever, but everything is made fresh that morning by people who are in recovery, many of whom are my residents, some are not, but we try to make sure that we're keeping people in recovery. And that store typically sells food at probably 20 to 25% less expensive than the other stores that you would go to get that that same food from. And that's open to the public? Open to the public. Um, We'd love to have you come try it. We think the food is the, good. Uh, well, I've had the, for Rotary, same same cooks, I'm assuming, yep. right? Yeah, yep. and the food's Absolutely. always really good. So, Terrific. Um, I think most people... When you go, they say that's actually like one of the best things about it is this the food. The so, food's good. We yeah, like so to I, hear so that. I, 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 I was going to say, whoever's, uh, um, and I don't know who the head cook is or who, who's putting it all together, but they do a fantastic job. Um, so, and, and MHAB has been around for how long now? Since we put our, so <laughs> I'll tell you a cute. It's pretty new. Yeah, it's yeah. very new. I'll tell you a cute Billy Jones story. When I first met, when I first went and saw Billy about doing MHAB, it was uh, April of 2018. And he said, so I explained to him what I wanted to do. And he said, great. And he said, when do you want to open it? And I said, January 1st, 2019, to which he burst out laughing. He's like, there's not a chance in the world you'll get this done in that amount of time. To this day, the running joke is that he was right. It took me till February 1st of 2019 <laughs> to put my first resident in there. But we, with, less in less year. than a year, in That's about why. nine months, we went from the idea in Betsy's office to having our first resident living there. Wow. It's been, so it's been up since February 1st of 2019. And I'll tell you a, a cute, heartwarming story about this. One of my first female residents and a resident, a male resident who lived with me for a long time, got married this past Saturday at Point of Rush. They met on our campus. Oh, wow. They're both clean for a number of years. They both are employed, have jobs, fell in love, and are doing great. And when you work in this field, Galen, when you work with people who struggle with this, it's a very defeating business. Many more failures than there are successes for all of us. It just is a, it's a struggle. So you have to take those moments where you're at a wedding and you're seeing two people who you played a part in helping them and say, this is the reason that we do it. As much as I want to say, I'm done, this isn't rewarding, it's too hard, too many people fail, I've been to too many funerals, I look at those things and go, there's a reason we do it, because some people do get better and get, and get their life together. And so that's, you know, that's one of those heartwarming stories that we think is worth telling. So, um, and, and like you said, it's obviously a full circle moment from you, like when you started out. So if we go, if you don't mind sharing, can you go back yeah. to kind of like the beginning of your addiction yep. to why it started? Obviously, the, maybe the yeah. not-so-good days and then like maybe the turning point and then kind of your journey to obviously opening up a, a place that you are, whether or not you said like the success rate isn't as high as the, the, the failure rate. I'm, I'm assuming every success still is better than no success. So exactly I mean, right. Yeah. yeah. And I think if you work in the field, you realize that that's, that's not germane just to us. Everybody that's works a in this right. number. It's, that's, just, it's just yeah. what happens. So, you know, if you go back to the beginning for me, and I tell this story a lot, and I, I'm pretty public about, you know, my addiction, and I, I don't have any problem talking about it. So when I was a kid, just a kid, before I ever put alcohol in my system or whatever, I, I tell this story about being a little league player. And I'm a I'm an avid sports guy, but I never was a great athlete. I mean, well, you and I played golf together, so you know I'm you know I like playing, but mm-hmm. and I remember being playing in little league and being like at the shortstop position and wanting the ball to be hit to me because I want to be the hero, I want to make the play. 
And in that same moment, the other side of my head saying, please don't hit the ball to me because I don't want to make a mistake where everybody will hate me. Mm-hmm. And it was, and that goes back to being what, eight, nine, 10 years old. So there was always this feeling of, uh, unsuredness, I guess, is a, is a good way to put it. And we, many of us in recovery, always talk about feeling like I never fit in, but being able to fit in anywhere. So I never, I never felt like I belonged with any one group, but wherever you put me, I could adjust to be able to look like I belong, but always felt like an outsider. And when I found booze, and I found booze young, probably 10 or 11 years old, oh, wow. it was instant. I drank, and I, I was like... Oh my God, I've arrived. I'm confident. I'm funny. I'm, it was, it was instant. And so I became a pretty close to few time a week drinker by the time I was probably 12 years old. And I was pretty much an everyday drinker by the time I graduated high school, oftentimes in the morning before school. So I was, it was full on. And and when you, what happened with alcohol for me is it made me very aggressive and, and, verbally aggressive, not physically violent. I wasn't really much of a fighter, but just like aggressive. Mouthy. Mouthy, absolutely. And so somebody recommended, well, smoke pot, that will mellow you out. And so at probably 14 or 15, I did that, and it worked. And so what would happen is I would drink first, I would get aggressive, then I would smoke pot, but I would smoke too much, and I would get paranoid. And so I knew drinking would get me back courageous. So I spent about 12 or 13 years in this area of really never doing one without the other. Like they were always kind of, kind of there. And then you throw in, you know, I found cocaine and LSD and everything short of sticking a needle in my arm just because I couldn't do needles, but any other drug that you put in front of me, I was willing to do. And, and when I left here, I was, all I wanted to do when I moved down to the New York area was just drink and party and live this life in the fast lane and when it ends it ends and I really didn't and I wasn't one of those people who said I want to be dead when I'm 30 but I didn't care if I lived past 30 or it did it like it didn't matter to me I just was I'm living and when it ends it ends is is kind of the lifestyle and I did that for a long time and you know Galen I often say if you took me and dropped me back there at 10 years old would I go down the same path And even knowing what I know today, I think I would, because I did have a lot of fun doing it for a lot of years. In the end, the last few years were very isolated, very alone, and very suicidal. Like I was just sitting in my apartment by myself, drinking, getting high, and just not wanting to live. So it got to a very, very, very dark place for a a period of time. Um, And that's how it happened. You know, I wasn't, I didn't start out at 10 thinking, I want to be 26 sitting in a place by myself with nobody around, no money, no prospects for a job. Everybody had kind of cut me out of their life for the most part because I was such a mess. You know, that's not what I wanted to be, but that's effectively where it got to in that 16-year period of time. Um, I mean, was there like a a point that you remember, like I got to get my life under control, or was it, like I said, some input from family and it was just kind of like slowly you just kind of started sliding the other way? So it's an, it's an interesting story, and I don't tell it often, but I'll, but I'll tell it for you. I, in that last year, I knew I recognized the problems that I had, and I knew they were probably alcohol and drug-related. Like, I understood it. wasn't ready to get help. My mother had 
my mother and father split up. My real mother and father split up years ago. And my mother was in a relationship with a gentleman who was in recovery from an alcohol problem. And my family started to get together because they were worried about me. And my family was all saying, Michael's girlfriend's not the right one. He doesn't have a job. He's not educated enough. He's not, they were all this. And this gentleman who'd been sober for a long time said, your son is an alcoholic. Like it's that simple. He drinks all day, every day. Like you don't, you can try to work on all this other stuff. You need him to stop drinking first. Mm -hmm. So back before interventions became trendy on television, they planned an intervention uh, with a gentleman who ran Conifer Park. And I was living in Danbury, Connecticut. My mother, it's a Saturday morning in October of 89. And it's about 1130 in the morning and I hear a knock on my door. And I'm like, who's here at 1130? And I'm drunk already. And, and I hear my mother yell through the door. She drove 300 miles to see me, and I didn't, was surprised. And I hear her yell to me, Michael, it's your mother. Answer the door. I know you're in there. And I wouldn't answer the door. I was too embarrassed and ashamed of what I'd become. And she left, and you know the weekend went on, and we went and had dinner with them or whatever, and they, I just pretended like I wasn't home. But that moment has stuck with me as one of those things that you just don't do that to your mother. Like your mother's like the most loving person in our lives. You just don't do that to your mother. The next weekend, I called my father and said, I think I want some help. And he came down and got me and brought me to Conifer Park. So that, that moment in time was really profound. It was one of those things where I said, this is it. You know, you're not going to live much longer if you keep doing this. And when I went to Conifer Park, I was categorized as, I was 26 years old, as a near-death alcoholic. So I was an, I was an everyday, all-day-long drinker. I drank, when I got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, I went out and had a shot or a beer. It didn't, like, that was just, that was what I had become at 26 years old. So that's kind of the, the moment where at least the original change started to happen. Um so, and again, I, I've, so when you get to like that point and you're drinking every day, like what is it while you're doing that? Do you realize like you have a problem or do you realize why you're like, do you realize like, I probably shouldn't be doing this, but I don't care. Or you kind of, maybe you're, you know, disciplined not to do it. It's like, you're aware of it, but your discipline's like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal or, um, it's now routine or now it's a habit that I just kind of, it's my comfort zone. So in the world of, of alcoholism, which was really my drug of choice, as much as I did a lot of other drugs, I could take or leave those, but alcohol was always there. In the world of alcoholism, there's this, there's this mental part of you that is able to convince you that. No, I, can, I can remember being arrested for a DWI. I'm a multiple DWI guy, a lot of other arrests. Mm -hmm. And I can remember waking up the next morning and saying, if I hadn't cut through the agency parking lot, I wouldn't have got arrested. It didn't have anything to do with the fact that I was drinking and driving. I made a mistake in how I was driving. That's the mind allows me to trick myself to say it's not the booze, it's that. It also tells me that even though every other time that I've drank, I drink myself into oblivion, today it'll be different. I'm just going to have a couple. Like most people who wind up really drunk, if you have a booze problem like I do, don't set out to do that. It's not that's not what the goal is. The goal is to go have a couple of drinks, have some fun, and then go home. But once I put alcohol in my system, I, I don't make rational decisions anymore. That stuff stops. So it's this kind of insanity of every morning you get up going, today's going to be the start of a different life. 
but I'm just going to have one to get through what I have to get through. And then it just starts and it goes through the end of the night. And then the next morning you wake up and you just continue to tell yourself this lie over and over and over again. So it's as simple as having for you one drink and then that's you're slippery yeah. slope. You've fallen off. You're, yeah. you're having, you know, multiple. And there's the, there's the old, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt no, you. There's the, there's the old adage of it's, you know, people used to think if he didn't have the sixth one, it wouldn't, he wouldn't have got arrested. For guys like me, it's not the sixth one, it's the first one. Because once I've had the first one, there's no stopping me at six or 10 or 12. It's not, so it's not that one. You know, for a guy like you, you can go out with your wife, have a couple of drinks, you know, hang out mm-hmm. with some friends, watch a football game, whatever, and then go home and not think about it. Mm-hmm. Drink a glass of water, go to bed, and get up the next morning. For a guy like me, as soon as I put alcohol in my system, that's over. That, there's no more thought process. I'm just going to drink until I pass out. Um. I mean, I, and I'm assuming you had plenty of hangovers back in the day, or that just become because this. I mean, as I've gotten older, and now I'm I'm 33 now. So like I said, you know, age wise, it's kind of like when you were sobering up. If I if I look at like 33 and I wake up the next day, half the reason I don't drink is because I mean I have three young kids, but also it's the fact that you wake up the next day and you're just not feeling great in the head, and it kind of wastes whether it's the morning or the entire day. Right. Um. So that's always something that's kind of stopped me from you know. I'm, I'm a social drinker. I very rarely drink at my house, you know, mm-hmm. alone. But you know, like my my wife doesn't drink a lot either. So I'll be a social drinker. But there's a I would say a handful of times a year where if I whether I go to a you know a live music show or you're sure. out at a wedding or bachelor party that I'm like you know I'm good. But my, you know my, uh, I I can I can have a few drinks. And even if I'm like you know what I'm gonna drink to the point we drink in the middle of the night. Next day I wake up with a hangover. I'm like, oh, I'm not drinking for like a month, and I'll probably go a couple of weeks without drinking. Yeah. Um. So I've I've never, but I will say like if I do like I like, I like drinking like a glass of wine with dinner. I don't do it regularly. Yep. But there's sometimes where I'll have it. You know, I might have a glass of wine. maybe we'll make a nice meal like on a Wednesday, and I'll open up the bottle and have a glass of wine. We'll usually bottle of wine and get about three glasses. So then I'll have one on Thursday and I'll have one on Friday just to go through the bottle. But I'll be honest, like every time I like by that third day, I'm like looking forward to that glass sure, of wine. Sure. But then I'll go, you know, I'll go a week and not touch it or even a month or two and not think twice about it. But I can see even in a short amount of time where you start to like, you know, what, I really like a glass of wine tonight or I really like whatever. And I, I'm cognizant of that with myself. And I'm, I don't think I have um, – luckily I haven't had any like addictive personalities yep. in that stuff. I mean maybe to like – hobbies or work or things like that but i can see how quickly especially if someone does it you know regularly for even a couple weeks how easy it is probably to fall into that i mean is that kind of what you found Uh, with people so i'll give you a i'll give you a a couple of things and first off i wouldn't worry about you having a booze problem i think you're probably you're probably good um i think that sometimes we focus so much on the actual act of drinking that we forget some of the other stuff that I said to you first, which I think is more important. Most of us who are afflicted with addiction have a bunch of behavioral stuff that go on long before we ever put booze or drugs in our system. Mm -hmm. You're a pretty well-adjusted 33-year-old, married, a couple of kids, educated, have a job, do all that stuff. You've probably been like that most of your life. Most people who deal with addiction, whether it be trauma or just insecurity or whatever the case is, there's bigger issues that go on there that alcohol 
takes care of. And the problem is, so for somebody like you, let's say you have a couple of tough days at work or something goes on and you say, you know what, I just feel like having a couple of glasses of wine because I want to unwind and relax because it's been stressful. That's fine. For guys like me, I can't just have a couple because it has to be this constant thing. So it really is that idea that once we start, we can't stop. But there are typically things that have gone on long before. If you, so if you think about in the world of recovery, relapse is a is a part of many people's story. So I know a lot of people who've been sober for years and then they return to drinking. And typically when they return to drinking, if they come back to getting sober and you start talking to them, you can trace that behavior back to long before they actually took a drink. So they might say, yeah, I started cheating on my wife. Yeah, I started skimming off the top at business. Yeah, I started lying to whoever, like whatever the case is, you can find these kind of behavioral things that go on to the point where they can't live with the stuff that's inside them. And so drinking or getting high looks like the only option. That's the difference between guys like us and you. Like you, you can use alcohol recreationally to help you with a tough day or a t- or whatever the case is, or even just to have a good time, like go to a rock concert and like, okay, I'm just going to have a few drinks with my buddies. Mm-hmm. For guys like us, I don't that that ability is lost. And what I found out about myself, Galen, is I probably never actually had that ability. Like I drank alcoholically from when I was ten years old. I didn't drink because I wanted to have a beer, although I convinced myself every time that that's what I was doing. I drank because I wanted to. I wanted the feeling that alcohol produced in me, which made me so much more comfortable than what I was beforehand. Um, like one of my one of my best friends went to rehab last year and he's doing great now and yeah. lost a bunch of weight and you know he's, yeah. if you ask him he's feeling much better um but same thing like i and i don't know where his story started you know in, in you know we drank in high school and we drank yeah. in college and it, he was always but then there was like a point in time where you realize like drinking with him was no longer fun because yeah. it was more of like babysitting or he would go home early and he you know and he's not a he would get like happy, but the 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 fine line between happy to like looking at you like he's gonna get in a fight kind of thing mm-hmm. was a very was, you know you're talking maybe a couple drinks tops, yeah. um, and it was kind of the same thing like he re- recognized it, did what he had to do, and is doing mm-hmm. better. And you know and I think he kind of you know good on him was he did he was very open about it, and I think he you know and it, um, I don't think I'm sure he felt. So, uh, self-conscious about it but it never appeared that he tried to hide it yeah. and he really reached out to friends and people that yeah. had been there and kind of as a support system and I talked yeah. to him a few times when he was in rehab and yeah. um, you know just as a, a little bit of a, ga- a gateway for half hour just talk about golf or whatever it might yeah. be um, do you find that I mean, you're open about talking about it now. Like, how was it back, you know, when you were going through this or even in the recovery process? And how do you see people now? Is it, you know, is it tough for some people to talk about? Do they, is there a point where they're just very open? Like, to me, if someone talks, I've had other people on that are, um, that that are sober, have been in recovery. Uh, one of my favorite ever was an uh, old high school classmate of mine that now works at Conifer Park. Yep. And, um, he's very open about it. Yep. He, he, unfortunately, he had a whole prison stint and stuff yep. with uh, drugs and, um, it was funny like talking to him like the same guy I went to high school with. He's right. still the same great guy and fun yep. and um, you know now trying to help others and he was very open about it too. So how do you find like what has been your journey about talking with it and then how do you find other people that are going through the same thing? Um, 
So I think that there's, so I've been doing this since 1990, and I will tell you that from 1990 to 2023, there's been significant change in the way that recovery is received. I think that when I first came in, I was embarrassed. I felt like I was weak. I felt like I disappointed my family. I felt like I disappointed everybody. I felt like I was less than all those people I went to high school with who'd moved on and were doing things with their life. And I was this guy who had to go to rehab. So I was not public about this my first few years. I was much more guarded about it. And I actually didn't become public till probably maybe 10 or 12 or 15 years ago. It's not always been as public as it is now. But I think what I realized is that if when we think of addicts, most of the time, we think of the guy you see on the front page of the paper who was selling cocaine, who came up from the city. And so we we have this idea that everybody who's afflicted with this is somehow a bad human being. And I think if people like me or your high school friend who's now at Conifer Park, if we're and we've become somewhat successful, we've done some good things in our life and been good human beings and paid our taxes and faithful husbands and all that. If we're not willing to stand up there and go, but this wasn't always me. When I was 20, I was somebody you wouldn't have wanted in this office because I would have stolen everything that I could and, and, or I would have been, you would have had to babysit me or whatever the case is. I think if we don't stand up and do that, we can never expect people who aren't afflicted with this to understand that this is an actual illness that affects a lot of people and that there are some really, there are some really bad people in the world who are afflicted with this, but there are way more good people who are just afflicted with this. So, so much of what I've tried to do is eradicate the stigma around this, be willing to talk about it openly so that we get that stigma piece down. And it's funny that you asked this question, we've been chatting for an hour or so, and it is what the whole rotary recovery piece is. You know, if you think about it, when you walk out of that rotary meeting, there's also people walking out of a 12-step meeting on the other side. Mm -hmm. Most of those people would never mix. But yet sometimes when I'm over there, I see the people from rotary talking to the people who came out of that room. That to me is the single best thing we can do as a society when it comes to talking about this, to recognize that these people are just people like everybody else but they're afflicted with something that, that did that. So that's the reason why I'm public about it. Yes, it is different today than it was. And certainly I think I'm assuming your, your friend, and I actually may know who he is, but I'm assuming your friend has uh, been sober for a while. Yeah. And so I think we have to be careful to not let people publicly talk about this who've only been sober for three months or six months because oftentimes they go back to using. So then what you see is if the paper does an expose on somebody that's been sober three months, completed rehab and came out, right? It's beautiful. Nice story. Their family loves them. Everything's great. Then three months later, you see them in the paper for getting arrested for a drunk driving accident or something, and everybody goes, oh, yeah, that's the guy who got sober, and now look at what happened. So we need the people who've been doing this for a while to be willing to publicly say, look, you can do this and remain sober for a while and get your life together and have this great life. That's what we're trying to do, I think. Um, and, and, I mean, I look at it too. You're in a leadership role at MHAB. I'm, I'm sure the residents all know who you are. Oh yeah. So I yeah. mean, if they look at you, I, I think it carries more weight from you running it than me running it. Because again, I, you know, I think you can relate to them, and I think, like I said, they're more of an open book. Where I think it's easier to, and then I would think that they look at you and say, even if they didn't know you were, you know, had recovered at some point in time, they might look at you as like, well, he's obviously done well, or is doing well, or is in a position that he's in. And then, especially when they, then they learn about, you know, because I didn't know about it until recently, you know. But if I, 
you know, if I was to look at you and, and then eventually realize like, oh, wait, he was kind of like us at one point. Right. And then it be, you become more um, more personal. You become more approachable. You become more, um, you know, someone that you can relate to. But I think, you know, even that must carry a lot of weight within the within the MHAP Center. That's where the hope comes from. What happens is when, when I can actually sit and talk with somebody, and so right now they see me as the shiny guy who's the president of the company and he's all of that. But if I sit and talk to them and go, listen, I was sitting in my house when I was 26 years old all by myself thinking about how I can kill myself and get away with it. Like, I was you. So you, I, it may seem light years away for you to ever be able to have what I have, but trust me when I tell you it's not impossible. I'm living proof that it's possible. So that is an important component to it. The other thing that I say about MHAB regularly is that I'm not – I'm not this brilliant guy who had this great idea or any of that stuff. There's a lot of people who've had great ideas. What makes MHAB successful is we had the buildings. It was not in anybody's backyard, so there was no NIMBY. And you had me, who's a member of the recovery community, who was the guy spearheading it. If it was just a housing model by somebody who was a landlord, who wasn't affiliated with recovery or doing any of that, it wouldn't work near as well. Same way if it was just somebody in recovery who didn't have a business mind and the ability to see it wouldn't work that well. So it's been, it was such a, almost like a coming together, like it was meant to happen because I've had people even from other states call me and ask me about it and ask if it can be replicated. And I typically say it can be if you have a couple of things in place. First off, you have to have the residents in an area that people will embrace it. Well, that's what we had. All of our neighbors you know, embraced it. Secondly, you have to have a face of it that's familiar with what you're trying to do. Like that person has to be willing to be public. So that those two things are really important if you're going to try to recreate this somewhere else. Um. I mean, so when you start, when you thought about the idea of, of MHAB, um, had, how long had that been in your mind as, as something you may want to, in a sense of giving back? Yeah. Um, was that, because I mean, you said you started at um, 18 was the idea. Yeah. Um, you and Betsy were having this conversation. I mean, was that ever, was that the, cat like Betsy mentions it and you're like, that sounds like a great idea or did you thought about this in the past? So. I think I always had ideas that I wanted to do something like this. Mm -hmm. Like I would think of it in terms of rehab, not in terms of this. But what, what, if you think about me, so I'll tell you two interesting things that happened when I was young. I had to go to the food pantry, the JCO food pantry once, when I was in recovery. So this was like 93. And my life still, I was sober, but I wasn't doing very well. And, and I remember being at that food pantry and sitting in there and being incredibly embarrassed um, that how did this how did this happen to me? How did I wind up here? And I remember saying to myself when I walked out of there that day that if I ever got to a place where I could help people, I would make sure that I would do that. I would never look down on them or do that. So that always, always, always stuck with me was the idea that I was going to do that. The other piece for me is that as an alcoholic and an addict, I considered myself a taker. Even though I might have come across as a loving guy or whatever the case was, I took from a lot of people. I took from my family. I robbed them of time, you know, money, the, whatever you want to say. I took from a lot of people. Not deliberately, not mean-spirited, but I did. I caused a tremendous amount of grief for a lot of people that I claimed to love. And so when I got sober, I said, the rest of my life, not, not like as penance or out of guilt, but... 
I've spent enough time taking from people. What I need to do is make sure that I'm giving to people. And, and so I've spent the better part of 30 years trying to make sure that whatever I'm doing is giving back. And part of that is because when I first got sober, there were some great people who helped me when they didn't have to. They didn't have to do anything for me. They were living a great life, and they didn't have to go, and they did. And so I take that role seriously, that my obligation is to go out of my way to help other people. So those are the things that really drove me to doing this. It was that that sense of duty. Like I have a obligate, kind of like... I don't want to compare myself to a veteran because I'm just not, but what veterans do for other veterans. There's so much, so many veterans who what helps them be better is when they're helping other veterans struggle through whatever it is. We're kind of in the same boat. I'm, you know, I'm not doing it with veterans, but I'm looking at people who are afflicted with the same thing saying, I have a unique ability to be able to help you. And so let me do that if you're receptive. That's where a lot of it comes from. And you walk the walk. Yeah, you know, exactly right. Same thing with yeah. the veterans. Like I mean, yeah. they just un- you understand it at such a you know, yeah. it, you know, in center. I don't know. Like it's such a deep level that yeah. you can't really explain unless you went through it. So, right. Um, so, so I think you, what you're saying is right on. Like if you, I have no idea what somebody in an Afghanistan desert went through for that time. But I know what somebody's sitting in their house thinking about how they can kill themselves with a beer in their hand and a line of cocaine on the... T- I know how they feel because I that's as fresh to me as it was 35 years ago. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, wow. Um, and, and I think the, the the other cool thing I kind of look at story-wise is, again, and I'm going to put my age in there, is that you, know, you, you start getting sober in your late 20s and early 30s. And I look at that as like, that would be like my buddy, like a peer of mine. At, yeah. you know, and I think most people, they come up through and, and kind of speaking to kids in the, you know, the younger age or even in the 30s, it's like, you, have, you really have, like life is a long time. If you really kind of stretch, it's short, but it's yeah. long. Like if yeah. you really stretch it out and look like someone, you know, I would say you might have said you hit kind of like a reset button in your 30s and then got like a whole very productive, you know, couple decades after that, you know, um, that I think like people coming in, it's like you can change, you can pivot, you can change your, you know, whether it's your, you know, the way the you know, obviously what's going on in your life, whether it's a job, whether it's, you know, um, you know, family or marriage kind of thing, like, there's so many things you can do that there's, I feel like, young kids they come in at getting out of high school or college and you know, like you got to have like your life figured out and i think they put that pressure on i think it's becoming a little easier now but like for you somewhere in the mid 30s most people would be like oh my god that's like an old age and then you kind of look back mm-hmm. and like like you've done a lot since that time yeah. i would and I'm, I'm sure that you're you know just as excited about the last 25 30 years as you were you know the previous yeah exactly i i think that you know life's I think a lot of people think of life in terms of I got to get somewhere. I got to get this. I have to get my education. I have to get my family. I have to get this. I look at life really as just one big journey and one big learning thing. And the mm-hmm. stuff that I've been through, like a lot of people go, oh, my God, I've been arrested, Galen, I think almost 20 times. Now, most of them are, you know, bull crap, you know, peeing in public or possession of marijuana. Little petty stuff. stuff little, yeah. little petty stuff. But I've been arrested a lot of times. And most people would look at that and go, oh, my God, that's awful. I can't believe you went through that. I'm grateful that I went through that because all the things that I went through when I was younger got me to this place in my life. And I look at my life today. I'm incredibly happily married. I have relationships with all of my family members. I'm running a couple of good businesses. I have a lot of friends. I do just about what I want to do whenever I want to do it. Like I have this wonderful life. That might not have happened if my life had gone a different route, like if it didn't go down that. And I think, you know, it's it's kind of like 
I live without regrets. Like I don't look back at my life and go, oh God, I regret that that happened. No, I don't. I look back on it and go, that happened and look where it got me. Look what it did to teach me and help me get here. And when I can keep that perspective, I love where I'm at. Now, would I tell you I'd like to be 40 again instead of 60? Of course, we all would. I mean, aging is, you know, yeah. nobody loves it, but it, it's, yeah. it's going to happen to all of us. So, um, but rather than worrying about the fact that I'm 60, I try to say, okay, what can I do for the next 15, 20, 30 years of my life? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I look at a lot of stuff and, and you know, with the idea, like, I, I believe that, like, you, you know, life happens for a reason and things yeah. happen. You meet people for a reason. And, you know, I, I've used this analogy before. Like, you and I were supposed to be sitting at this table having this conversation right at this now. point in time. You know, yep. not five years ago, not five years from now. Like, and I, you know, I look at even as simple as, like, how did I meet my wife? And how did I have my kids? And how did they end up getting into this job or go to this school or not go to this place? And, you know, you kind of look at it and I... I think you could, you know, you play the what if game so much that if you just take that away and just like, just enjoy it, just like yeah. roll with the punches. One, it makes life more fun. Yeah. Um, but I also think, again, you know, you look at different things that shape who you are now. And MHAB probably was never going to be a thing in Plattsburgh had someone like you not gone through what they did, came back. I mean, you just look at the yeah. the percentages of this coming to life, very small. But then you look at it and like it helped out the people that got married. It helped yeah. out, you know, and. You know, in, in it, whether it's a, a small, like a small, maybe like footnote in someone's life, like, but you help them, you know, do whatever, maybe a huge footnote, maybe a full, yep. you know, full title to a book in, in their life kind of yep. thing. And um, I think that's, uh, you know. And I think you're wild, right. But- when you look back on it, you go, wow, it did happen the way that it was supposed to. It worked out exactly the way that it yeah. was supposed to. And rather than me trying to say, I wish it could be different, I just look back on it and go, it is what it is. And what am I doing today? Mm-hmm. And if I really want my life to be different today, there are things that I can do to change that. But what happened in the past, I can dwell on it, but it's not going to help me be different today. Like what's going to help I, me be I, different today is saying, here I am today. I, I, I had this, uh, I saw this somewhere. It was um, it was like a graph, but it kind of looked like a bunch of like paths, like kind of diverting. And it was almost like a, yeah, it was like we would go out and split and all those would split like branches or vines or whatever. And it basically had like a line down the middle. It's like things you can't change. And it was like that one path of your life. And it says things you can change and just continued on a different color. Yeah. And there was a, like probably, you know, just in this one graph, infinite amount of different little paths you could pick, yeah. but it's like. You know, you can't change the past, but you can change everything in the future. That's and exactly that's, right. you know, I think people, they, they grasp on it. And it's easier said than done, but if you grasp onto that. Um, all right. A couple um, questions that I had for you that I wanted to, you, you've touched on a lot of them. So um, what what is, um, this is kind of more of like your role as like the CEO or president. Sure. Regarding, you know, the CEO you kind of pick out is like, you know, the, the visionary, the, the person maybe kind of looking at, the overall vision or goals and stuff. How do you break down your role as a, when did you become the CEO and how has your role evolved as a CEO and kind of give us like a day to day or maybe a year glance or how you run stuff. And then, um, you know, you take like the visionary aspect, but who's, you know, are you also dealing as like an implementer or is that yeah. Betsy? Is that someone else at the company that really runs with your ideas and, or, Kind of how's that all work? So I think when you're a when you're a small non traditional company like I would categorize us, and remember that I don't have any formal education, so I'm I'm doing this kind of how you know just what I think is best. And and when my father decided to take a teaching job at the college, and he appointed me president and CEO on the same day, which I it's probably 15 or 16 years ago. I don't remember the exact day, but it's been that long. And when I took it over. 
I didn't really have any idea how my role was going to change. Like what I've always been responsible for is kind of, uh, I, I guess I would say operations manager. Like I've been in charge of all of the stuff going on in the place on a day-to-day basis. When I took the company over and I realized that I had to have more of a vision and start developing um, plans for what's going on in the future, how we're going to grow, those bigger things that my father had always done, it was a couple of years of kind of uncomfortable transition where I would waffle back and forth. Sometimes I would want to be the president and CEO, and sometimes I would just want to be out back, you know, working with the people. So I had this. Um, probably a three or four year period of time where I, I kind of waffled back and forth deciding what I liked. My, my father had made a comment to me once when I wanted to take the company over a few years before he turned it over to me. And he said, I don't think you understand how lonely it is at the top. Mm-hmm. And I didn't necessarily see the difference between being a president and, and a vice president. So I learned pretty quickly that he was right, that when you're the president, ultimately it all stops with you. It doesn't go any further. And so Um, So that's some of the stuff. The other thing, the way we run the company on a daily basis, my leadership style is probably um, I'm very collaborative. I try to be very empowering. I like to be hands-off, and I like the people who are in roles of leadership to be able to jump up and be leaders. My flaw in doing that is that if they're not doing well, I'm not necessarily great at tutoring them on how to do better. I'm way better at just going, give it to me and I'll fix it and then I'll give it back to you. And, mm-hmm. and so there's some learning about how I have to interact with people who might not see the world exactly the same way that I do. The other piece is that Betsy and I are incredibly collaborative. Some people would tell you maybe too collaborative, that there's not a lot of separation between what I do and what she does, with the exception of the specific pieces we have. Like I have the you know day-to-day responsibility and she has finance responsibility. But we talk a lot and try to make sure that we're in consensus, her and I, with what we're doing. So those are the things that I think of. The other piece is, I think Gary Douglas said it when they gave me an award for the chamber a couple of years ago that I think he called it a unique leadership style. And I, I guess what that means is I'm not your typical um, CEO of a company. I don't typically dress with a suit and a tie. I don't talk to people in political platitudes or any of that. Did you what dress you up see? for this? I didn't. I have another okay. event to go to tonight, so I needed to do this. I, I so like no, your sweatshirt look, actually. It wasn't actually. for you. You that's should have told much, me that. I would wear a sweatshirt, that's too. That's much more how I, how I go. Um, so I think... What you see with me is what you get, Galen. I don't. I don't typically talk differently based on the arena that I'm in. I don't. It, it, just what you see is what you get, and I, I think that people that work for us like that. One of the things that Betsy and I say to people when we hire them is we we make it clear to them that we're not for everybody. If you're looking for corporate America, if you're looking for rigidity and rules to follow and all that stuff, don't work for us. We are not those people. We're much more of a family here. That's how we operate the business. And and whether it's the right way or the wrong way, for us, our size, what we do, it's been very successful for us. So I, I would tell you that I think my leadership, I'm not a tyrant. I'm, uh, you know, I can be a leader and I can, you know, hold people accountable, but I like the people to be able to find their own way. Like be, be little mini presidents like you. Mm-hmm. This is your responsibility. You don't need me to monitor you to make sure you're doing it just make sure you're doing it like it's yeah and i i, I think i'm i a lot of what you said like resonates with me I'm, I'm similar in a lot of that and i think my 
my negative is like a leader is that sometimes I get so engrossed in like what I, my responsibility of what I have to do that I'm very hands off and I'm like, this is what needs to get done. I just trust that you're going to do it. And I probably should have a little bit more oversight on stuff, yep. but I get into a bubble where I'm just like, okay, I got to get in. I got to get hammer out these things, you know, take care of my stuff to make sure I'm not, you know, dropping the ball on my end. And then, you know, but, but again, it, it's, it's difficult because some people are, you have to manage people differently or some people, yep. you know, re, um, maybe need a little bit more direction or accountability. And some people, you just give them, give them the baton and they run with yep. it. But I think that learning curve. one of the greatest leadership things I learned is that you can't just rule one way with everybody. Mm-hmm. People are individuals and it, and in the world, I have to deal with people differently. There are some people who respond to me saying, I need you to go do that right now. And there are other people who need me to say, listen, what I'd like you to do is think about how we're going to do this. And, and you have to be able to switch hats and do both of those. And I'll, yeah. I'll give you one of my other things. And when Betsy listens to this, she'll chuckle about it. But <laughs> Betsy is great at compartmentalizing and coming in and everything is just kind of normal no matter what's going on. I'm a very emotional guy. Wear my emotions on my sleeve. And that is really great in leadership on sometimes, but it it can be detrimental because I take things so personally. Like things can really affect me that might not be going well in the company. And I have an incredibly hard time of setting that aside and just coming in and going to work and be it. You know what I mean? It's it's like, like a this very is bi- di- these are business issues or are these like business issues. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Business yeah. issues. But they're people that I've worked with for years. And so maybe they've offended me or I've offended them or there's been an argument or something. I have a hard time just saying that was just a business. argument. take Betsy, for instance. Betsy and I are like brother and sister. And when we fight, she can she'll just bounce back and go to work and like, nah, it's no big deal. Mm-hmm. I don't care. We're fine. For me, I'll spend two days like we have to talk about this or Stewing I can't. On it. Yeah, exactly right. So yeah. and it's it's just ingrained in me. I don't you know. It's, it's probably it a good yin and yang. It's a very good yin yeah. Because I, I I think really well. Because like I said, I'm I'm probably like I get bothered by stuff, but I'm probably more like Betsy yeah. where I'm just like f it. You know, like I'm just gonna so roll. Yeah. You know, it's just and I, and I think too if I don't. I try to not to keep my expectations high of people. Like, yeah. and I think if you do that, sometimes you set yourself up for failure. Like if someone called me today and like in my business, like, Hey, I'm canceling the appointment or maybe I'm not showing up or maybe I forgot. And now it screws up my day a little bit. My, I just kind of like, you know, it is what it is. Like roll, figure it out, right. you know, kind of pick the next lane. But yeah, like you're human. So like if you have confrontation and you know, I don't think anybody sets out to have confrontation right. when it happens. It's more of like, like if you and I got in a fight, like oh god, like I like Mike, and then like, but right. it feels weird, and then you have that weird conversation, <laughs> and you might be like, no, we're good, like you know, so right. it's not a big deal. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, let me see before I get into some fun stuff that you had wrote up up top. Um, I asked, well, what, I guess one of the other ones is like, how do you stay up to date on like the change in the industry and stuff? Because like, lo- like logistics and manufacturing and shipping and warehousing, like yeah. that stuff with technology is growing by the minute. I mean, that's, um, have you found that it's been tough to kind of keep, um, you know, up to date on that or, or again, from like an innovation standpoint, you talk about like, um, you know, let's take Amazon with so much automation. Do you find that, are you working towards that? Or like you said, you're very much, Hey, we're more niche to like the small, medium sized business. We don't really necessarily have to go that extreme. So we're to, we have a very small IT department, two guys, but they're fabulous. And, we're probably ahead of 
other companies our size, and we're certainly ahead of most of our customers. So mm-hmm. we have a little, we're a little bit more advanced with regards to that. For me, staying up with the industry is an awful lot of reading. Most of it's internet searches, but you know, I subscribe to things like transport topics and material handling and magazines like that that give you a whole lot of information about what's going on. But you're right, the the move in the logistics world is all about technology. It's everything is done on on technology, and the more you can do. We actually entered into an agreement with Clarkson University uh, just a couple of weeks ago where they're going to have some of their students do some work around uh, warehouse robotics. Not warehouse robotics that would replace people, but warehouse robotics that would make it easier for people. So one of the cool things they're doing is they're working on a very inexpensive drone that can actually fly around a warehouse up into the higher levels of the warehouse and read uh, boxes, writing and things on boxes so that you know, right now, if I need to know what's on a skid and I can't, I have to have somebody go down there with a forklift or an order picker or a ladder, climb up there and figure out what's on there. Mm-hmm. So they're working on coming up with a drone that somebody will be able to fly around to do that. So those are some of the things that we, you know, look at as ways to enhance what we're doing without saying robotics are going to take over the world. Like some of these warehouses like Amazon there, I mean, you need an engineering degree to be able to run some of their robotics things. We're never going to be that. But we want to stay a little bit ahead of just the manual part of business. That's kind of how we think yeah. about it. It's as simple as a drone. I mean, like the idea of like a drone, just a simple problem of just height. You know what I mean? It's it's funny when you actually break it down of yeah. like how easy some of these problems are, but it's yeah. a time waster for yeah, you guys. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. Um, let me see. And then how do you stay – obviously, you oversee a lot and you have a lot going on. Like how do you stay organized day to day? Like any, any hacks, tricks, kind of efficiency setups you guys have? You know – Seat of your pants? Like For me – I, there's there's two things that I do. One, I never let my emails get unmanageable. I will go through and clean them up to the, I try to keep them, you know, like under 50 in my inbox at any time. At the end of every month, I'll go back through to the first day of the month and go through all the emails that are there from the first day and decide what I need to do with them. So I never build anything up more than a month's worth. So that's one of my kind of things that I do. And it can be time consuming, but it's helpful. The other thing is, I still carry around a notebook. And even though my calendar is electronic and everything, I have a notebook. And I try to put all the things on there at the end of the day that I have to do tomorrow. And I try to put the hardest, if I'm going to have one of those confrontational talks or something, I try to put those at the top Mm -hmm. and say, let me take care of those first. Because one of the things I've learned is if I have something that can be contentious, that weighs on me mentally, and I push it down the list... I won't do those other things above it very well because in my mind is that thought. So I try when I come in in the morning to take care of the harder things first. Those are a couple of little tricks that I try to do to, you know, just help me be able to do it. But when you get to be the president and CEO, and we're not a, you know, Fortune 500 company or anything big, but I have great people who do a lot for me. Mm-hmm. And it's it's almost funny that you begin to rely on that. Like, a, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I have those people who would do just about anything for me and I'm so thankful that I do, but I still try to hold on to some of the stuff that I'm doing. Like I don't need somebody to do everything for me. So I t- still try to hold on to some of that. Um, and as part of that, just you don't want to give it up or part of it, it allows you just to meet. Cause I, I look at my business. I don't have any, um, I still like working, like I, I still do a lot of sales, but I, in my head, I'm like, I've always, even if I get to the point where I don't have to do sales, 
uh, which is still a handful of years out, yeah. would ever want to get to the point where I don't because my industry, being in front of clients, is like it's like market research for me. I really yeah. kind of can keep my finger on the pulse and make a lot of good decisions because I'm in the trenches. So this is, it's funny, we do an awful lot of movement within our facilities. So we'll move an account from here to there based on new accounts coming in or people leaving. And just a couple of weeks ago, I went over and I was talking to somebody about doing a, a fairly big account move. And they said to me after, wow, this is as happy as I've seen you look in a few weeks. Be because for me, I go out there and I still love that stuff. I still love hopping on a forklift and loading a truck or doing stuff. Mm -hmm. I, can't, I can't make that my full-time job because, as you said, we have yep. other responsibilities. Yep. But I don't ever want to lose that. I like going out and being in the warehouse. I like being dirty. I like throwing boxes around. I like like it's it's fun. It reminds me of this is how I learned this. Yeah. You know? And you, yeah, I, I think too. Sometimes you, you learn a lot by going down to that ground it's level because then you realize like inefficiencies that like we yeah. haven't changed this in five ten years. And right. Now it's like let's you right. know let's do something. There are other ways we could do it. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so now um, I, I want to jump into the podcasting. Because we didn't talk, we talk, briefly talked about yeah. it, um, and then I want to talk about some fun things to wrap it up that you okay. kind of added. So, um, regarding the podcast, I'm looking at one here with yeah. uh, Ed Kirby, yeah. um, and you have a handful of them that you obviously were, uh, you know, you filmed it. Yeah. The studio setup um, gives me a little bit of like a Brady Bunch feel. Yeah. Um, you kind of get like it looks like kind of a little bit more of the '60s '70s decor. Um, it's you, Betsy, and obviously a guest, in this case, yep. Ed. Uh, so kind of tell us about this. You, it looks like you guys have probably did, what, maybe 20-something episodes? Yeah, it's, it's probably 20 or 25 of them. When we started this, Betsy and I were were just sitting around one day after M. Habit opened. And, and if you interact with Betsy and I, you realize that we're pretty good. To, like, we play off each other pretty well. It's mm -hmm. a pretty easy relationship. And so we just got to talking and said, maybe we should try a podcast, talk about recovery. We had a young woman who graduated college who was doing our social media for us, and she was pushing hard for us. So I said, I'm willing to try it. I like talking. And if you see me, I typically wear a sweatshirt and some that are pretty caustic. And so every episode has a different um, kind of caustic sweatshirt on there and that becomes kind of the running thing at the end is what sweatshirt will I wear next week so I you know we had fun with it and we wanted it to be somewhat normal uh, Betsy did the decorating my eye for art is terrible so I said it's, you a, cool, do, it's a cool studio I yeah. said you do whatever you want <laughs> I said I want an ottoman so I could put my feet up I'm wearing shorts and a hoodie so that's going to be the thing um, and then we put the little fireplace in there just to add a little bit of you know greenery family family ambiance and realistically it was Nothing more than than Betsy and I talking, me throwing some insults, her kind of responding, and we'd fight a little bit on the podcast. And then we'd bring a guest on and, and talk to them for a while. And most of them, I, it's probably an hour, maybe a little over an hour, most of them are. Um, and we just... Somebody told us that you could make money doing this if you wanted to or yeah. whatever. We, did, we didn't do it for that. We did it for, for fun. And you know what happened? I had one resident move in with me, and he told me that the reason he moved in his mom went online and saw our podcast and he was in rehab when she saw oh, it wow. and she told him you need to call these people and you need to move in up there these people are like the real deal for what you're looking for after you get out of rehab so those are those kind of stories that make it worthwhile like we don't have a cult following or any of that but we do have some people who watch them pretty regularly and we get some comments sometimes what well, i as i say like I, i've been doing this now for five years and you know people always ask like do you make money off and i i, I 
I currently no. Right. Um, I've had opportunities to have people that have asked about sponsoring and doing yep. some different things, and I, I will go to that level at some point. Sure. Partly, I I look at it as I want to have a certain level of um, I. I it, the, the format doesn't really change. I mean, I've gotten a better studio now. We're slowly building out. I got a table coming. It's going to be a nicer setup for a table. Um, but really, it's like I wanted to have, you know, I wanted to have, you know, a, a good solid chunk. I mean, this is 232 episodes over uh, almost five years. Yeah. So I wanted to have that. My listenership has, I remember when you first put it out and you have a, a couple. And yeah. now I'm looking at it, I'm like, okay, I got like a decent list, sure. listenership now, which is fun to see. But. When I really want to get to the point where I feel comfortable where if I were to have people sponsor that I think it's worthwhile for both of us to right. do it. And so I never – I set out because I, I, I like talking to people and it was a cool yeah. format to meet people. And um, over 200-plus episodes, I mean, you meet a lot of people, but you learn a lot. And, um, you know, and it, selfishly, it's kind of a good – you know, whether you want to call it a, a education for myself or not, I get to yeah. – you know, I get to have you ask, ask you questions and obviously you run a business. And, you know, and it could just be down to someone that's – I mean, there's so many different guests that I've had, and they're all different walks of life. But it's just cool to ask the questions. Well, do you know? Can I just interrupt and tell you yeah, that when I when I did this, one of the things this is where, and I was talking to Jen out front before I came in here. This is where I got so comfortable being in front of a microphone. I realized I was comfortable. God, I got on there, and I just I was like, God, I could just sit here for hours and do this. This yeah. is like great. Like I lo- I love this. Well, I also go go back, and the reason I like long form. I've said this before. It's it's. I, I use the analogy, and you're, you're you drove trucks, so you'll get this. Like, I call it the Albany trip. Like, we've all gone to Albany. Everybody mm-hmm. from up here has had the lovely two two and a half hour drive to Albany. But when you get in a car with somebody, let's say you and Betsy get in the car, or you and your wife get in the car, or whatever, someone you're driving down uh, with somebody that you kind of know. Usually, the first like half hour, like okay, I got to get some drinks or food. Or maybe I'm texting some people or organizing some last minute things or calls. Then you get to the point. I'm going to call it maybe like exit, you know, let's say exit 3130-ish. You start getting to like the heart of the Adirondacks. You hit that point and it's very quiet for a solid hour. Sure is. And I find that when you're driving, the conversation gets a little more relaxed. You're not checking your phone. You're not, you know, scrambling. You have your drink. You don't have to go to the bathroom yet. Like all these things. And you're just gradually going down. There's no traffic. You're seeing the trees and the mountains. And it's a, it's a very pretty ride. But usually the conversation turns a little more, whether it's deep or just a little bit more, you know, maybe your mind's thinking a little clearer because you're just in a very, it's like taking a shower, going for a walk or exercising. You kind of get in this moment of clarity when you're talking. I find if I, I would have had you on and talked to you for 30 minutes, it would have been like in the door, out the door, yep. and I wouldn't have been able to pull back any layers of your story. Yep. Um, so I, I like that aspect of, you get to have this long form conversation, which in a 2023 world very rarely happens. Right. Uh, with no cell phone, no you know, no interruptions, no TVs on, things like that. Um, and I find that you can really kind of strip down, or, or like go back in time to the basic of human interaction, which is just yeah. talking. And I find that there's something like relaxing about. I, I enjoy every podcast I do. I look yeah. forward to them. Like yeah. when I have one that day, I'm like, "There's a podcast day, yeah. and it's fun." Do you um, know that I I said the same exact thing? I said everyone, and they weren't they weren't like interviews. Like you could ask Ed Kirby a bunch of questions, but we're not interviewing. Like yeah, I don't you know, Ed, yeah. I don't feel like you're interviewing. I feel like we're just I'm two guys that are question, here but we're that are here talking. Right? We're just talking about stuff, and that's what I really embraced and enjoyed about this. So I looked forward to today when you when Jed asked me. I was like, "Oh, this will be fun. Yeah. I, this will be thoroughly." 
thoroughly enjoyed uh, um, it. So, and so regarding the podcast, like yeah. um, you said you may want to – because it's been – you said well, about a year and a half or yeah. so since it stopped. Did, yeah. Intentions to bring that back or why, it, maybe why did it stop? Was it just – It just – we just got scheduling? busy. It, yeah. We got busy. COVID. I mean there were a, a bunch of things that happened. The woman who ran our – department that did social media and the podcast left took a job in the city so we didn't have somebody that was kind of driving it it was up to betsy and i to make the time to do it Mm -hmm. we didn't have a set time so you know it's 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 just a lot of those things and because it's not a core of our business it's one of those things that we let slip by the wayside and and i i want to bring it back because it is all about like where your podcast is getting to know people and it's a, a much wider thing our um, you know, niche is we're talking about recovery mm-hmm. and, and it's important for the people in recovery to hear some of those stories that are going on. I, I don't, you, I assume you've probably heard Ed Kirby's story and if, I, I actually haven't, if but you, you know, his son died of a, of an overdose okay. after, you know, Ooh, getting injured, um, and then getting hooked on oxy from the injury uh, wasn't like typical. And, and Ed is very open about it and the things that he's, that he's done. And it's just, a, I mean, I've heard his story 20 times and I cry every time I hear it because it's just like, heartbreaking and, yeah, and yet it. he does so much in the community so we have a we have a lot of those things that we try to do yeah. and and uh, bring different people on i was gonna say your guest list was a good group of guests yeah it's been it, it was pretty good yeah, yeah. We, we brought some people on um so re- beyond beyond podcast beyond work um actually last thing i'm going to say about your work i'm going through my notes here and yeah. i write too small and i write too quick yeah. and just um strictly business you guys have been putting out strictly business how many years now it's 30 uh, you're gonna test me on this I 80s, think it's, 80s? no it, i think it was 91 90 or 91 so it's 32 or 33 years oh. i believe who was on the first cover amy amy whitehouse was the president of the chamber of commerce at that time and she okay. was the very first cover the magazine was black and white in fact if you come to the I've, office i've seen some, the black yeah, and white covers yeah. yeah if you come to the office someday we have a rack that has all of our magazines displayed and that's the first every one single that's one there. no well no because it's not big enough. okay so we'll replace them, but we leave that first one up all the, you know, it's been up the whole time because it's obviously the first um, magazine and we've been doing the forum. Actually, it might be a little longer than that Galen for the magazine because the forum came after, and I think this year's forum was the 33rd. So the magazine wow. might be 35 or 36 years. The, old uh, now. well, I was going to say that from a magazine standpoint, it uh, truthfully, it is the only magazine I get to this day. That I actually get, I look at, right. I, I'll go to my office, I'll show you a whole stack that I have saved. Yeah. A lot of them I get podcast guest ideas from them. Um, yeah. But when, uh, I think that, I think that just that magazine alone in a, in a day and age where people probably are getting away from magazines, I still yeah. think a lot, I see it in every waiting room, I see it all over. And I think yeah. people, it, it is from a, uh, from a magazine or a business standpoint, I still think it's, it's the gold standard of what we have. And it's been for obviously Thank longevity. Um, Thank you for that. That was my my father and Mary's idea, and they've loved it. And, you know, my father is an advocate of business. And what that magazine always carries is all that's good in business. We don't publish bankruptcies. We don't get mm -hmm. political. We don't fight. You know, it's all about what are we doing that's good in the community? Who can we showcase? How can we highlight what they're doing? Those types of things. We think it's important. And some great writers and contributors and, you know, Gary Douglas and a few others, you know, that that write regularly. Um, And then uh, 
the let me see what was the other one is going to say oh and, and then obviously i'm going to tie the forum to that too because that's you know yeah. that's always in the magazine every year but forum's a huge success you just like reading success. through it because it, yep. it, it's people that you look up to or people that you have you know that are um uh, their voice in the community is well received and, and and valued and i think it's just it's cool just to have like a little snippet into everybody's thoughts yep. um what i so i wanted to ask you about this uh you can talk backwards <laughs> or were you I, just trying to bolt? Like, no, no, I really, that's okay. I, I really, I really wrestled with putting that on there because you back, knew I was before, ask back before I fried all my brain cells, I used to be able to do it. And I'll tell you how that happened. Back in, <laughs> back in high school, you know, people used to flip their first names. So they were cut, tailing, it was like pig Latin kind tailing, of stuff, whatever, things like that. And I was just like, well, that seems really easy. So I'm just going to go with it backwards. Like, like your name would be Naliag Yelbmort would be your name. You backwards. can say that that, that quick. Yeah, yeah, that quick. Yeah, yeah. And I've gotten a little slower as time's gone on because I can't, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I'm getting older. My brain doesn't work like that. But yeah, that's going to be close to the translation for your name if Good you did Lord. it backwards. So yeah. what's, your, what's yours? Ekim Retinaprak. M-I-K-E, E-K-I-M. And, and people ask me how I do it. And I say, I don't think I have a photographic memory. I just can see things. And when I, I so I actually sang. A I mean, I have your name in front of me and it took me a second to, but that's, yes. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. <laughs> I actually sang a song at the old Jackie's Club bar with a band backwards, the whole song, a Billy Joel song. Really? Backwards, yeah, years ago. Did you years practice ago, it, or did you send no, the lyrics and just start? Just got up there and did it. Yeah, I wow. used to be able to do like whole sentences. You could say a sentence to me, and I could almost, as you're saying it to me, repeat it back to you. I'm going to ask you not to do it now no, because this has been such a long time. But I, yes, that I was kind like... of a cute thing, where teachers would look at me and go, "There's something wrong with this kid. Like, like there's really something wrong with him." It's I, also if you think about incredible. that. It's the same with mathematics. Like if you throw a mathematics problem at me, I can almost do it as fast as a calculator can, just in my head. Like I just you always had know, that ability. Always, always had it. I took I took a eleventh grade trigonometry class that I got a hundred on all the tests, but I never showed my work, so they wouldn't give me a hundred because they said part of the exercise was showing your work. And you I did said, it in your head. I said, but I don't know how to show my work, but the answer's right. And then, yeah, so it's always been like this weird, kind wow. of weird kind of thing that goes on that, with me. So I don't know I, if it makes. I don't cool. know. I don't know, Galen, if it makes me really smart or really crazy. Probably a little bit of both. Like I'm probably fairly smart and a little bit crazy all the I, same I wasn't, time. I was going to say crazy. I'm like, that's like this guy is impressive. <laughs> well, <laughs> He's got some like card up the sleeve we don't know about. Um, so. <laughs> So I just I had to ask you that. The, the other one I was going to ask, I mean, I, I I think I first met you, we played golf, just kind of uh, rolled up and, and played, and yep. I think Dave kicked both of our tails that day. But um, you, you've been playing golf. Do you follow golf a lot, or have you been out much this year? I, you know, I've only been out, I think, two or three times this year. Usually I'm out a lot more than that. I do play. I go every year on Memorial Day weekend to Southern Virginia, and there's 100 guys that come from all over the country that are all in recovery. And there's a three-day oh, wow. three golf tournament. So all of us get together once a year. We go down and we have a three-day golf tournament at this great golf course. And so, so it's coming up? Coming up, yeah. We fly out of Burlington on well, next Thursday, I think. There's four of us that go down from here Oh, wow. That, so, um, so it's a ton of fun. When did you so, pick up golf? You know, I didn't start playing golf. I mean, I played a few times. You, you, from my memory, you were you were pretty good. You know, Yeah, I'm a, like a bogey golfer. Yeah. I mean, that's about what I play. I, I only started playing about 15, 20 years ago. And... and uh, and I fell in love with it. And then I kind of stopped for a little while. And the last few years, I picked it up again. And a lot of it for me is I don't 
I don't love playing golf for the sake of playing golf. I love playing golf for the camaraderie and stuff yeah. with the people that I'm out there with. So the idea of going and playing with people that I don't necessarily enjoy for four hours doesn't excite me. So I play with a pretty closed, you know, there's not a lot of people that I'll go play with. And yeah. that sounds kind of arrogant because who am I? But it's just I can't see myself doing something for four or five hours I, if I don't really want to be with the people that I'm out there I with. I was playing, uh, we were at Bluff Point just a couple of weeks ago. And we were supposed to play early in the morning, me and a good friend of mine, and we show up, and we're like 5.30 a.m. golfers. Like yeah, basically, so the so sun can come up. Yeah, so are we. So um, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, we're waiting, we're waiting, and we're like, ah, there's frost. And it's 5.30 in the morning. Yep. So we waited till 7. We just set, There was three of us out there. We're sip, drinking coffee, hanging out, and finally, we, we called it. So me and another one of them, we went out to go in the after we're like listen i came in and i was just like i got all my work done very fast obviously it cleared my morning out for golf so yeah. i was able to in the second half of the day kind of move stuff around and we went back out we get on the second hole we're ready to tee off on number three at bluff yeah. this single guy comes behind us we're playing two there's a foursome in front of us it's just a slow day of golf yeah. guy rolls up he's like do you, uh, do you mind if I, he's a canadian guy he's like mind if i play and I'm like, I don't want, I don't want to play. I don't want to be rude. I just don't want right. to play. So the guy goes up. We're like, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I don't even know what you say. Like, right. no. What are you so, going like, to say? No, you don't want to, you you don't want to sound right like, yeah, arrogant right. or whatever. So guy gets up and hits. And then we're just like, hey, we'll drive up with you, but just go on and ahead and play. We're, yeah. we're just, we're going to take, we'll take our time or whatever. But it was the same thing. Like the, the, when you go with a buddy and you're kind of like, especially a guy that you're very like close with and just like, you know each other and you can talk during the swings and you can just have a good time. And you had one more person in who you don't really know, it changes the dynamic. Changes the whole dynamic. So like, I want to, like, yeah. it was just like a day, it was sunny out. Like, I just want to hang out with a buddy of mine and just like not yeah. think and not have to make small talk with anybody. And so that I, I, I get that because I'm not, I will play with anybody, but yeah. it's also just random people sometimes you're like i don't know and sometimes i've met some great people on the golf course you know whether you know might be on a trip and you get paired up with a threesome yeah. or something but my wife played my wife and i play my wife plays too and so when we travel we typically will go somewhere where we can play and the same thing happens and typically when we get paired up with other people it's fine we have a good enough time or whatever mm -hmm. but for me it's just I want to play with people that I really enjoy. Like it's that's that's a lot of that's what golf kind of is for me more than Absolutely. more than the, more than the game. And I'm not competitive. You know, I'll tell you one quick golf story. I was at Westport. This goes back probably 15 years ago, and I was having a terrible day. And I'm getting of course it's yeah. a terrible terrible just a terrible day. <laughs> and I miss hit a, a chip and and I threw my pitching wedge and it helicoptered and it hit the bar on the cart, snapped in half, went right through the cart, snapped in half. I told the guy I was with, I said, bring me back to my car, I'm all done. And I didn't play golf for the rest of that year. I just said I didn't. And the next year, I, I when I went back, I said, I'm not good enough to be that angry. Yep. This is stupid. I'm not paying $50 to go out there and be throwing clubs. It doesn't make sense. Yep. And since that day, I've had a ton of fun playing golf. Yeah. Like, it's just been more enjoy. And we still get frustrated when things yeah, aren't going absolutely. well. But uh, the idea of, of being so angry that I'm not a you know great golfer just is gone. I, I had a... <laughs> A couple of people have said that, like, wow, you're pretty, like, mild-mannered. I'm like, I don't practice enough to, to warrant, you know, like, right. I basically don't put enough into this game to warrant, like, good results. So, right. you know, I, I have my, you know, I used to play a lot as a kid and was way better than I am now, yeah. but, you know, I, I don't get out much. I don't right. practice. I got kids. Right. I got work. You know, it's like, but, like, my thing is, like, I can sneak out in the morning and just be outside and play, and, you you know, we all have moments. You have a good shot, or you might throw yeah. a couple of pars in a row, sure. and, you, you know, yeah. you walk off with, the other day I played 
terrible and then i birdie 18th hole that's like the golf gods being like you're ready to quit here you go we're gonna, go. We're gonna drag on. you back in so um yeah i always thought that was kind of fun and uh I, I, like the next podcast we have is the pga championships this coming week yep, so right. next one is the pga championship yep. podcast we just get a bunch of guys we just like we watch on tv and just I'll tell you, I, the other thing i love watching golf people say they can't Same. i'm telling you right now sunday afternoon of a major tournament i'll hunker down on my couch at one and not leave the couch like Same. it's fine i don't need to get up i'm good like just close the curtains i'm fine watching golf you know it's like that's what you're gonna do all day i'm like all day yeah like and like especially, especially when you like the masters like you're really gonna sit there all, i'm like right. all day and, all and day. My, my wife's gotten to the point now where she she knows that she's like, and I'm like, oh, this is a major week, and <laughs> and, and, week. and I remember when we got to like awesome. the, you know the open or whatever, and she's like, oh no, I'm like, good thing for you, this is the last one, and then she's like, okay, I'm like, but there's also the Ryder Cup in about three, <laughs> about two months <laughs> from the now, FedEx so Cup the comes FedEx up later, and, oh, yeah. and I watch those, yeah. and like right now she loves it because I was like not watching was the Wells Fargo last week or whatever, so, um, so then you said, uh, let me see, horse racing too, or do you? Like I'm an avid I'm an avid horse race. I think horse I think player. I heard that before from someone. So do you like are you just like Saratoga is like tracks or do you like yeah have, do you I'll, have any of your own horses? I, I don't. You know what? I've been close probably a half a dozen times to buying into one of the syndicates. I, I don't want to be that much into it, um, but I haven't I haven't pulled the trigger and and I don't know if I want to. You know, for me, it, a lot of it is the studying of the sheets and the things that go into doing it. You know, mm-hmm. obviously horse racing is gambling. You can't you know you can't argue that. But there is a fair amount of logic and a fair amount of studying yeah. that goes into it. And the idea behind you know picking a horse that's 15, 18, 20 to one when you can see in the you know sheets or whatever that you're reading why you think there's a case for him is just tremendous for me so i I derive a tremendous amount of satisfaction out of it i really do enjoy it where do you go mostly is it saratoga saratoga i'll go and you know you can play online now if you want to everybody's allowed to do that yeah the old otbs are gone and you know i was in saratoga last weekend for the derby okay uh, go down there and stay for a couple days and hang out with all the you know kind of crusty old white men like me who are sitting in there do you go down more on the rail or like the well if i'm at the real track i'll i'll obviously sit in the grandstands okay and i don't you know i've sat in an owner's box before and up near the finish line in the clubhouse but i'm a regular horse player i'm just a regular guy i want to be there with all the other people who are like me there's a there's a you want to have you the no yeah i know what you mean that that sport's kind of like nascar it has this this very wealthy chic clientele but the real fans are the people who are down at the rail or out in the picnic area or something yep. like that. And I like to be with the real fans who are who are in that area. I, the first time I went to Saratoga was about two two years ago, mm-hmm. and I was with a group of you know brokers and some friends that had flown in, and we uh, we went into was the eighteen eighty three or eighteen whatever the yeah. the thing at the end is, yeah. and I didn't, I don't know anything about this. The guy yeah. kind of hosting us got yeah. us all tickets. So we go in, and. Obviously, amazing. It's like food, drinks, AC, yeah. TVs, and stuff. But there, but and then you can walk right down to the track to the rail, so every, yeah. on the rail. So yeah. every time there's a race, you know, you do your bets and you go down. And every time you went outside, it was like, I'm like this is cool. And then this, the I've been maybe once or twice since then. Every single time though, we we roll in. You know, you bring your cooler in. We go right yeah. to the, right on the rail. Yeah. You know, we're sitting there, we're having cigars and watching the yeah. thing. And it's just, but it's like it's nice out. It's quiet because you don't have all the hustle and bustle. You do when the race is going on. Yeah. But then it's just. It's fun because it's like two minutes of action. Then you have, what, 28 minutes b- yep. ballpark to get your yep. bets in. We do it through the app now. Yep. But you're just hanging out with some buddies. And it's, what it is. It's, it's a social aspect. And I don't think there's 
give me like a really, really nice day in the summer and you're down at Saratoga, it's a great time. Yeah. Whether at the track or go to SPAC for music. Like I just, I love that area in the summer and it's just, I mean, we have, like you said, I mean, you moved up here, but it's like the, the quietness, the summers, the seasons, but yep. you give me summer and up in northern New York, I love it. Well, I've been to most of the big racetracks in this country, and I've been to a lot of the big races. Saratoga right here in our backyard is without a doubt the nicest, best 36-day meet of any of them in the country wow. year in, year out. It's the You have the best owners, the best jockeys, the best horses, the best trainers are all here for that 40 days. So it's really something that we take for granted. I own, Last year was, the I think two years ago probably, two years ago was the first year I didn't buy season tickets to Saratoga. I've been a season ticket holder for years. And I, I the one, so they race, it's close to 40 days now. One year I wound up going, I think, 23 or 24 wow. times, which is, that's a lot, you know. Yeah. So usually I get down there, you know, six, seven, eight times a year. But I'll play all the big races and I'll go somewhere else and play them if I have to or, you know, find a place to do it. So you'll go like the, you know, kind of whatever the, the is that racing Wednesday to Sunday? Is that the? Wednesday to Sunday at Saratoga right now. So Live would you racing. go Wednesday to Sunday or you go down like on Friday to Sunday? So it depends. If I go down and stay overnight, I might go down on a Thursday and stay till Sunday. Oftentimes I'll just drive down for the day and drive back. You okay. know, it's not, it's not terrible that ride. I've done it enough times. Yeah. You know, that is pretty simple. Yeah. So like I said, it's that yeah, 87 just yeah, straight I, shot. Yeah. I don't mind doing it at all. Um, no, the, the, the track's cool, and I think that's something that, like, once a year, like, at, at this point in my, my life, once a year, but I could see myself going down. It's just, it's more of like, hey, if I can play golf in the morning and go to yep. the track in the afternoon, like, that's a fun day. So. Do you know what's funny about it? You know, for horse racing, real real people like me that do it, and and listen, I'm not getting rich betting horses, but I'm also not losing money. I'm good enough that at the end of the year, I'm probably around even. Some years I have good years, some years yep. I might lose a little bit. But it's in, it's either in your blood or it's not. Like, my wife can't stand it. She is like, I. there is nothing about this that excites me. You have to sit here for 30 minutes to watch the horses run around the track one time for, you know, 55 seconds, and then yeah. that's it. Can't stand it. For me, it's like I could come down here at 6 in the morning, watch all the workouts, stay till race day, have lunch, bet the races, and then go home at the end of the day and come back tomorrow and do it again. Well, like um... – well, it's it's the atmosphere, it's the smell, it's like it's all of it. I, like the, like right now, the well, PGA Championships at Oak Hill. So yes, that's I, right. In two thousand three, um, actually, this is funny. I, I'll probably play this on Friday. So if people, um, so I went down. Let me see. So I'm looking up perfect example. So you, I don't know if you've seen the shot. You're going to see it this week. They're going to replay this a million times. So for people, this is the. Sh- Sean McKeel is the guy who won in 2003. Okay. Um, is this at Oak Hill? This is Oak Hill. So this yeah. is 18th at Oak Hill. He hits it out from the left rough. I think he might even be in the first cut. And I, I don't know if I've ever seen this this whole thing live. I am right here. Oh, really? That's yeah, awesome. So you can't, you, uh, I mean, awesome. and again, for people to ever see this, you're going to see there's a big grandstand in the back. And yeah. I was about two rows up. I think I was the second section That's in. Awesome. So I'm probably like right about where my cursor is now. But he, he's just in the left rough, like the first cut, and he, he almost jars the shot. And this is he ends up winning. And I, I believe it's his only win ever yeah. on the PGA Tour. He just happened to have this miraculous day. And uh, he kind of goes up and, yeah, flips his ball up, lands, almost rolls in the hole. And he kind of gives a little fist pump. I mean, at this point, he was leading, and I mean, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, this guy's just tapping it in now. So, um, but again, I don't think he ever won since then. But I, yeah, I just remember. Oh, look, he even got his parents. That's there. what so a world. Cool. But yeah, so it was just it was one of those funny things. Like, 
yeah, I'm like right somewhere in that ballpark. And I just have good memories. But when we go to, I was lucky enough to go to a few of those when I was a kid. And just the, you show up in the morning, you get there like seven in the morning. The first guys are teeing off. It's like, you know, golf, it's like quiet. There's dew on the ground. It's, you know, the the major crowds aren't there yet. You get a cup of coffee and just, I mean, not at, I wasn't, 2003, I was a little young for coffee. But I've been to some sense where it's just, it's the smell. You just it's the you, atmosphere. Yeah, you it's got the like the, you see like some sprinklers going. You see yeah. the mo or you see the guys in the golf carts mm-hmm. just driving around. Like these are people behind the scenes. You go to yeah. the range and guys are just hitting and chipping and yep. it's just it's the whole build up to it and it's it's tough. Like this obviously culminated the week, but like my memory's not even really of that. It's like a million things that happened in the week. It's just like this is just fun. Like yeah. this is and, and I haven't been, you know I think the last time I went to any type of major was about ten years ago. But it's uh. They're fun, but yeah. Um, but yeah, no horse horse racing and golf. Um, well, Mike, we'll wrap it up there. I figured I had to get some golf talk in before uh, I let you go. Uh, you know what? Love it. It's. Uh, I was gonna say that, and I love you're smart. You have Jen send the questionnaire out, you like so that? you have all this information. So you, you well, know, you don't, you don't so, ever run into a dry spell. So well, we we uh, we just started doing. You might be less than five people that filled this yeah. out. So, so what happened was we kind of looked at some stuff and we we did a lot with processes and we're yeah. heavy in it. And I kind of a couple of things I've always wanted to do with the podcast, we never really got to implement. So I'm like, hey, I've always wanted to do a quick questionnaire for people that I may not know, but also there's some cool things that I'm like, I, that's, I want to dive into that right. topic. And I might not have even asked you about a couple of these things had you not. I mean, I would have right. gathered a lot through what you started talking about. Um, I I kind of have the, I, I tell people I have like the gift, like I'm Irish, I have the gift of gab, I've kissed the Blarney Stone, yeah. I've done all that stuff, so I can't, there's not a lot of dead space in podcasting, because yeah. I can probably fill any space, but um, it is better when I get a little bit more information, but yes, Jen, Jen's been a big help, and then you know, obviously the studio's new, we have better sound mm-hmm. now than we did before, and we're slowly kind of, this is all going to be cleaned up, I'm just waiting for the table, and this will all be cleaned up, but it's going to be, it'll look nice here, okay. yeah. I'm so, excited. Yeah. You're going to have me back. I'll I, come back. I, I will. Do an yeah. update. You, you, know? you're, you're, you were a lot do, of fun. Do you know what's funny? When we did ours, it's funny that you say that because we there were a few people who it, it was much more of like an interview. Like it was more of a struggle and you had some of those dead spots. I've I'm, had some of that. Yeah. I'm fortunate that I don't, I'm like you. I'm not, I could talk, you could just give me the microphone, let me talk for two hours. I mean, I would do it. And so you had Betsy never, too. So I mean, there's. Yeah, there's some interaction, but getting them, or they only give, you know, canned answers. Like, how do you feel about this? And they give you a two line answer and it's like, okay, well, could you dive in a little I, bit and tell me that? And I've, I've had a few where it's like, you know, you try to pull out of them. And these are some great people. They yeah, just exactly. they get up and they answer the question. They stop. They're yeah. like, Okay, which is fine. Then, like in those, I'm working harder because I have to have some like things lined up in my head. Yeah. And sometimes I have questions. Usually, if I write questions, it's not if I ever get stumped. It's like some people, I'm like, I'm generally curious right. to ask these. I'm like, I'm gonna forget if I don't write them down. So a lot of it's more to make sure that I'm not forgetting things. I'm like, God, I wish I would have asked Mike that question and I forgot about it. So how long do we talk for today? Are we in the two uh, about, hour range? Uh, two eleven. Wow, that's awesome because yeah. it didn't feel like it. No, if, if, it, it, it goes pretty nice, quick, so and that's why I'm always like checking cool. time because I'm like just make sure I don't. Yeah. I could sit here for four hours and talk about yeah. nothing. We, I mean, if you wanted to get into golf, we could have talked three more that's hours. That's right. Golf, so. We just talked about the PGA Championship that's it. coming up. Um, well, last question I'll ask you: yes. who, who do you think's winning that? You know, how do you bet against Scheffler right now? The way Scotty? he's playing, yeah, he's he's very good. I don't like the I don't like the idea of what happened with the Live Tour because I think it took a lot, an awful lot of the good competition out of these tournaments mm-hmm. you know i think you saw it in the masters when you had some live people in there but uh but i, I don't know how you bet against scheffler although i'm always rooting for mcelroy and then you know i don't know how he'll play but i'm always I, rooting for the guy I, I didn't realize so my pick this week and again i picked him for the masters and work out is rory so yeah. i've been a massive rory yeah. fan um, yeah, me too and 
He's won the championship twice, but I, f- I didn't realize this until this week. His wife's originally from Rochester, so they go there quite a bit, and he's actually a member of Oak Hill. Oh, okay. So, so I didn't know that. So he's got a little. So he's played it a lot. So he's, he's, I think he's, he's played it quite a bit, there. and that's probably where he practices when he goes to Rochester. But you know what? I'm probably like you. Uh, it'll be on in my office all day tomorrow, and, uh, or uh, Thursday uh, and Friday. My, my, it'll be out of my, my Friday is usually a flex day, so I try not to put anything really on Fridays. It's yeah. just like a catch up day. Well, that's going to be like TVs. Like, I'll probably be working in here. Right. I'll have the, t- I'll have the TV up, TV. and then I'll just be playing around that's with some awesome. stuff. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my, my hack on a. Uh, my pro- productivity usually on Thursday, Friday of major weeks, it's not much. So, Mine too. Um, all right. Well, we're going to wrap it up there, Mike. I appreciate it. And anybody that wants to check out MHAB, they're on the base. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll put some stuff in the show notes, but obviously check them out. You know, you, even if it's just for the restaurant or the, or the uh, you know, kind of the deli there. Sure. Um, and then if people need, you know, want to reach out to the Northeast Group or any, you know, whether it's printing or whether it's distribution or anything like that, what's the best way to find them, find you guys? Northeastgroup.com. We're online. Um, or we're over on the base. Come on over. Stop by anytime. Yeah. Perfect. All right, Mike. Well, I appreciate this. Appreciate it. Have yeah, a blast. Absolutely. Uh, all right. That's episode 232 of the Galen Trombley Show. We are out. Thank you for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on all social platforms at Galen Trombley. Thanks for listening.